everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites' weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. My name is Brian Vitali. Joining me, we've got the usual crew. We've got Josh Torres. What the spark? We've got Adam Vitali. Hello. James Galizio. Got to be snuffing kidding me. And Chowman Wu. How's it going? So this is an episode that I think we've had circled on our calendar for a long while. And that, of course, is, without further ado, this episode is going to be a Xenoblade 3-focused edition of the Tetracast, potentially with a little bit of Digimon Survive sprinkled in. So if you are just now playing the game, uh, we are going to be talking about the premise here. We're going to be talking about some of the features that we put up on the site. We're going to be talking about the game at length, as spoiler-free as we can. But if you want to be completely blind, just letting you know that there is no, you know, no regard that we are going to be talking about the game here. Obviously, we'll timestamp this episode to the extent that we can about what we are talking about and when, if you want to skip forward to the news section, etc. So obviously, we have covered the game up on the site. Within the last week, we have published our review for the game. We have published several other pages for the game, some other features. The main two contributors behind this are both on the cast here today. Uh, Josh Torres, our TetraCast <laughs> veteran, uh, has covered the game for us extensively and has written probably the most thorough review ever in the history of RPG site up onto our website for Xenoblade Chronicles 3. And then Adam Vitale has also been playing the game and has been basically been encyclopedic about covering all the game's aspects in terms of its quest, its unique monsters, trying to like figure out and complete the game. Uh, let me put it this way. Adam, what is your, what is your in-game clock right now on Xenoblade three? What's it? Uh, let me take, let me take a look. <laughs> Do you literally have it on uh, right now? <laughs> 269 hours. Okay. So, so basically but for this that's, episode, that's not indicative of the length of the game. That's a lot of guide writing, idle time, Tons of grinding. And yeah, like, like, uh, like uh, yeah. If you were, if you were like, I don't know, if you had an hour count of how long Adam and I have been like talking about this game throughout the hey, one. Adam, <laughs> when when did you get your code? Because I it feel was, like it was like uh, I think it was maybe five weeks ago. It was like okay, the yeah, end of June, last weekend of June, I believe. That, that's crazy, man. And that's with a full time job. I couldn't. Jeez. <laughs> Well, I feel kind of like, a, I mean, I remember, but it doesn't seem like that long ago. I remember when we somehow got, we were lucky enough and, you know, privileged enough to get two uh, early copies for the game so that Josh could focus on covering the game from a review aspect and Adam could focus on covering the game from a uh, guide aspect. And back in the days of Xenoblade Chronicles 2, uh, Josh also covered that game from a review aspect and I covered that game for guides. And we were in both cases lucky enough to get the games early enough so that we weren't under the usual gun of, Here's a 50-hour RPG plus. Have two days to to look at it. Good fun. Uh, good luck. Have fun. Um, yeah, it, it's just uh, to give credit where it's due. It's like it wasn't just Adam and me. Like we also been in, like talking a lot with Alex Seedhouse from Nintendo Insider, mm-hmm. who did get an early copy for it to review as well. And like you know, we exchanged all three of us back and forth like uh, a lot of info, of, like trying to understand like how do how do things unlock, where things are, what are certain triggers, and like this is just like we'll get into it, but like this is a really really big game and like it it looks like it isn't over the offset but once you start digging into it it's like holy crap this feels just like longer than one and two i think i think james just got to this point like chapter one and two feel pretty you know typical like in terms of length and pacing and then chapter three is just like opens up and like now you have a lot of things you can go a lot of direction a lot of things you can do a lot of directions you can go uh 
So. Yeah, what I'd say is is that chapter one and two, because there's not really much reason to go off the beaten path too much with those, because there's very little side content. Mostly it's like kind of a straight shot. Uh, I'd say like chapter one and two combined took me like around 10 hours. And now I'm 15 hours into chapter three alone. And I've definitely got at least another five or 10 hours left before I move on to chapter four. It, Have you gotten involved it yet? Uh, yes, I've gotten okay. Valdi, I've gotten Teach, I've gotten Gray. Yeah, okay. so, so just, to, just to kind of set the table a little bit, uh, James says about 25-ish hours into the game. He was able to grab a copy uh, in the middle of last week. I just was able to access my downloaded copy when it unlocked yesterday, so I'm quite a bit further back. I'm kind of like, I think I'm about at the Chapter 1 to Chapter 2 transition. Uh, I think the only one left out here completely is Chow, who is trying to get his hands on the special edition of the game, I think. Uh, yeah. So we will loop. Go ahead. I said I wouldn't let me check out because it was a cat or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. And yeah, so, so, yeah, so Chow's spiteful. Yeah, Chow's spiteful to Xenoblade 3 right now because of uh, the whole special edition kerfuffle. All right, so I will uh, just to start this out. Obviously, since James, Adam, and Josh, especially the later two, have had a significant amount of time with the game, I'll hand it off to them to kind of carry the majority of the discussion here. Obviously, James is far enough along that he'll be able to offer his impressions, and I I will also chime in as I'm able from my early impressions of the game, having played the rest of the game. Well, not the rest of the games in the series, having played one and two and their DLCs. Uh, so I will start off with Josh. Since he is the one who has covered the game in the review aspect for us on the site, he has played, as far as I know, every other Xenoblade game extensively. Uh, and without any like spoilers, he has rated Xenoblade 3 very highly and has, thinks of it in a very high regard. So Josh, Xenoblade 3, uh, you've obviously spent a lot of time with this game over the last five weeks. Uh, you obviously think very highly of it. So I guess it's kind of like the discussion is your oyster. Like this game apparently is a game that you would recommend without hesitation. And I guess take it away. Like yeah. Xenoblade 3, it's worth the it, wait. It was, yeah, it was, it was really weird. Uh, like thinking about like, what, how am I going to review this game? Like, and like kind of summarizing what I think about it. Cause there's like so many aspects to it that like I broke down in the review and like kind of, it was like that whole review I I treat it as like as the template of like kind of working through my thought process that my stuff like why I gave it a ten because you know when we we rate games on the site and we like come to the conclusion like we think we should be a ten we always have to like be very critical of like why we gave it a ten why we think it should have a ten and really question like does it really deserve it and like kind of run it by people as well. So like when I was there, like you know, talking to Adam about it, and like uh, seeing if uh, our big boss Alec was okay with giving it a ten, and like hearing them say, "Yeah, I think you know it'd be fine." Like there's like no really pushback on it, like because I don't want to be like that person that like am I am like am I a crazy person thinking that it that it should be rated this highly? But I think that Xenoblade Three is one of those really rare, really rare instances in uh, RPGs. It's not even just Japanese RPGs, but RPGs in general, where it like. It is greater than the sum of its parts, but even like so, like a good chunk of its parts are very, very strong in carrying it to that score. Like the the one thing that Adam and I always, always, always talk about when it comes to Xenoblade Chronicles Three is the way it writes its characters and the way it writes its main cast and the way they interact with each other, the way they interact with the world, the way they interact with uh, the people who inhabit the world as they go along this journey. There's something very natural about the way that they interact with each other. There's like no, there's not sort of like that. Um, it was both uh, like 
sure it was exhibited in two and to some extent and like definitely like in one as well where like you had like the those um those over-the-top uh reactions that you know that we see in like anime shows and so forth and that's totally fine for their premises but like in the way that like xenoblade 3 like presents its role in the premise we went over this like during the preview of like how like there's these two nations at war and then like the people the troops uh on both nations and kevis and agnes only are, are clones and only have a 10-year lifespan um and it's like it's treated very very seriously and it's like and having those types of like moments and reactions that you see in one and two wouldn't actually work in this game and that's a very tough challenge because i imagine like during development they had to like make a choice of like do we want to like lean towards like how, how we used to do it in past games or do we want to go off like in a, in a different direction with three i think i really commend monolith soft with trying to like kind of not dial it down but putting it in a more uh respectful and more thoughtful direction of like having these characters just like have moments with each other that isn't necessarily like advancing the plot but advancing like the way that like their characterization towards one another and that like how you genuinely like feel like they're learning more about each other and care about each other and like trying to understand why they view the way they, they think about the world and that like what like what aspects of their upbringing their experiences till then like why are they the way that they are um you, you want to elaborate more on that Ada? because i know you have a lot to say about this too so a lot of japanese rpgs just in terms of their tonality and this isn't a criticism this is just trying to be a description you have characters who have like really exaggerated personalities like it's not like a believable personality of someone you might meet in real life but they're just like you know very over the top or maybe they have like a really powerful or overbearing like character quirk or whatnot right and then when like you have a second character who has their own exaggerated personality and then when you have like these two characters meet with each other you have like these intersecting spheres of exaggerated personalities that can sometimes lead to like fun goofy uh moments or sometimes just entertaining um to have like these two characters meet and interact or whatnot but that that sort of tone just wouldn't really work with Xenoblade 3 just on, on the theming on the premise of the game and whatnot so like the character interactions in 3 are are a bit more down to earth uh, they're a bit more natural and a bit more like realistic I think because they're not so exaggerated and um, I think that's mostly just down to tonality of the game just you know there there is like this is in chapter four. It's a very, very minor moment, not really a spoiler, or it's a quest. There's like one kind of goofy moment with a side quest in chapter four with Juniper, and it kind of sticks out because it's just like, because the rest of the game isn't like yeah, that. You know what I'm they, talking about? Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. Like they're, they're, they're like very minor like scenes, like in, like in side content that like ha, like carry that spirit of like you what you would see like in Xenoblade Two, with like how like framing like the like the composition of the of the scene. Like in a certain frame, like say, like it's like, for example, like a lovey-dovey scene when you like they see like a woman and there's like a it's like a pink, front, like borders with like some like maybe hearts uh, right. on the screen, and then it's just it's just one of those. It's like you don't see that kind of scene like at all in Xenoblade Three. So like when they try to like dip into like what Xeno how Xenoblade Two framed some scenes, like a good chunk of scenes, it it really really it's like okay, that's kind of, that kind of came out of nowhere. And and like it's not it's not like it's necessarily like awful. It's just like it just kind of like blindsides you of like oh, okay, <laughs> I guess that happened. Well, when, I, when very, you guys were minor. discussing the character interaction being 
kind of like one of the focuses and forefronts of Xenoblade 3, I was kind of thinking like, well, what was at the forefront of Xenoblades 1 and 2? Uh, I haven't played Cross, unfortunately, and I know I think everyone else here has, so I might be a little, I'm ignorant on that front, but I have played 1 and 2. For 1, I would say that like its main like selling point when it first came out, when uh, I remember when this thing, when 1 was first announced as not even, before it even had the title Xenoblade, its kind of focus was its scale. I remember people talking about like Colony, uh, what is it, six in that one, where you can like fall from the cliff way from the top into the lake around the colony. Uh, and, and the Guar plane, of course, like Xenoblade 1 sold itself on its scale, especially on the Wii console. And then Xenoblade 2 completely overhauled its presentation, which eventually was kind of backported into one through the um, Definitive Edition, kind of establishing a visual identity for the series. And then like three, it seems kind of like a natural progression where it's it's got the scale, and even in the first, even within chapter one of Xenoblade Chronicles three, which is where I'm at, that scale is still present. And then the graphical presentation is you know in line with the other two in the series. So to focus on okay, how are we going to have our characters interact? Um, what is the story presentation going to be like? How is the narrative going to unfold? It does kind of seem like that. That's where they've shifted their focus. And I remember in a lot of the preview opportunities, and this seems like a silly topic, but it really quite isn't. Um, on its face, early on in chapter one, there is a hot tub scene, and like in any Japanese RPG, this is a very like common archetypal scene to carry out both either uh, a narrative. Uh, you know, present, but also like hijinks, comedy, things like that. And Xenoblade 3 plays it incredibly straight laced. Like it's all in terms of just introducing characters. It does not like do anything to be like, oh, is the is the reader or the player going to be bored of this case? We should have hijinks here. It just doesn't do that. It plays it in a way where it's completely in the service of the narrative itself. And I think that having that like right at the outset really kind of sets the tone for at least and as far as I've gone, what the what the kind of the how this game is going to present itself to the audience which seems it does seem to be a slightly shifted focus compared to like one or two and i don't know i appreciate it even even from the early stages of the game i think one of like one of the like scenes that really sticks out to me uh in the game that like uh, like i'll always remember the scene about the game um adam do you remember the scene where um lons and mio are washing dishes and then soon after um noah goes talks to mio about like hey we're almost at this place yeah uh, and like and it's like one of the best and, scenes in the game yeah, i don't exactly. really want to say more about it yeah, we have say, not yeah. a story spoiler it'd be more like a character spoiler exactly yeah because and, because and, the game goes out of its way to allow these characters to like interact with each other and it, i feel like a lot of games they run into this problem where characters kind of end up becoming just like exposition mouthpieces where they just basically talk in circles to each other explaining the plot to each other and that's like that's certainly a that's certainly a function of a character is to talk about the plot and to move it forward but sometimes i feel like games forget that characters have to be like believable people too and that scene you're talking about is one of those where it's it's primarily between noah and mio who are of course like the main two characters of the game but the other characters are also like a part of that kind of broader scene as well and throughout and that's i think honestly if i were to give like this game like what is my favorite aspect of it like a singular aspect it is the characters and the character writing like obviously i think the story is pretty cool i think the gameplay is great uh overall but like i think the character aspect is probably if i had to pick one my singular favorite part yeah yeah um I could talk forever about like the the characters and the writing, but like like you know obviously it's not the 
the the main focal thing here. Uh, I want to hear more from James. Like, hey, where are you in the game? What are your initial impressions? Like, just what's going on with you in the game? Yeah, I honestly think I couldn't like agree more about the character aspects of it. And this is going to be a bit weird, so I'm just going to kind of say this. The opening of this game feels like it has Frail's pacing <laughs> in a weird way. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by that? Like, there are so much cut scenes, and because of how linear it is, it's like really railroad. It, it, it understands the importance of really setting things up so before it kind of lets you loose. But the pacing of like the story is still fast enough that it keeps you engaged, even if you're like still on a leash until like chapter three. Yeah, it's- I want to I, I want to emphasize like I just especially seen it, James. Is like there's a lot of step by step tutorials. Like there are a lot a lot of like things early on where like you cannot progress until you do the step by step tutorial. It is like a fr- like it is it is one of those things that like you can tell that like they got a lot of feedback and a lot of complaints about how Xenoblade X and Xenoblade Two did the tutorials that they're like okay, we're just gonna like really handhold you very tightly. For like the first fifteen or so hours, I don't know. My friend was really burnt out with these tutorials, so I think it needs a balance. I guess it's yeah, I, yeah. It's one of those states. It's like it, it is definitely um, like yeah. a, a, a weird sort of you know reaction to it. Like, maybe I I've, maybe I like, played enough. Uh, sorry, Chow. Uh, maybe I played enough uh, JRPGs that it doesn't phase me because early in Xenoblade Three, like it has you like here's how you buy an equipment accessory. Here is the break topple day system, and I don't know. I didn't really think about it, but maybe like I, for others that don't play as many, uh, it does get a little bit more cumbersome. Uh, what were you gonna say, Chow? I didn't mean to talk I, over you. I was just saying like Xenoblade Two's problem is they were too fast. I, it's like you didn't really have time to process the information, and in the first launch version, there was no way to recheck it again. You know, until much later. I remember so. that. So that's one of the reasons why it was kind of like, oh, it's like, this is stupid. That's probably why they add too much tutorial this time. But I feel hey, Brian. Hmm? Sorry. Sorry. How far on. are you in again? I'm I'm just in the first region of chapter one with like the first handful of side quests. So you don't you even did, have, you have the yeah, you haven't other seen, half of the party. <laughs> yeah, you haven't seen what we mean by the tutorials. Oh, okay. Because there's like, a lot of the early quests were like, do a do a break attack from the side here equip an accessory so those are like tutorial ish but i guess i'm only in the first half i'm still on the hill up yeah you're still you're still you also, you're you also haven't really met like the main premise of the game yet which is the end of chapter one in terms of like what kicks things off really yeah, I haven't. I haven't really had that oh shit moment. My my, I've heard about the premise of their terms, uh, and the things like that. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, I'm only like two hours in. So I will try to keep the conversation to uh, to what you guys have experienced, like as the game opens up in chapters two and three. How do you feel the um the so obviously one of the main points that they talked about in the previews of this game that is different from the other games is how the cast interacts in like on the overfield with the battles with, you know, the entire cast blinking part at the same time where the, the UI seems crowded. The feel seems like it's very like lots of, you know, lots of participants on screen at the same time. And obviously based on your impressions and a general level, it seems like it all works out. All right. I don't know if you just wanted to elaborate on that because that is one of the like gameplay tweaks that is different from this game compared to the others in the series. Yeah. Like my, 
prior Xenoblades where from an outsider's perspective, you see like the battles of one and two, it looks like a mess. Uh, right. And then three, especially because you have all six of your main characters out plus a seventh hero party member. And then they always, uh, like in two, they display aggro lines, but only briefly. While in three, they always display aggro lines. Um, and then you have like uh, buffs and debuffs that have like fields. Like it, it does get visually busy. And also, along with the heads up display, where you have like, you know, one part of your arts bar to the right, the other parts of your arts bar to your left. And then they, they have all that functionality. You know, I'm not going to go step by step again on like how this all works. But like when you're playing, it makes a lot of sense. And you're uh, sort of thankful that like it is, uh, it's designed the way it is because there's a lot of helpful things. Like there are distinct icons when like that display, like when you're in range of an enemy attack or when you're in range to auto attack an enemy, it'll display that. When uh, when you're like at the in front to the side or to the uh, in behind an enemy, it'll display like exactly where you are relative to where the uh, where the enemy is so like you know hey i'm in position to do this uh skill that'll inflict like break you know so i i, I don't have to do any guesswork of like oh am i am i enough to the side of an enemy to like uh, to pull this off and like it'll surface that so like you know obviously to a person who, does, who isn't familiar with its battle system like it'll just be like oh my gosh this looks like it looks like uh it looks like someone opened up ms paint and then like 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 drag their cursor all over the screen with like with lines and it's like yep that's well, if, I, if i remember right in Xenoblade one definitive edition how it worked was if you were in position for a skills bonus effect to kick in that skill would be highlighted but now in xenoblade 3 it's more general it's just saying it clearly marks you are behind the enemy you're the side of the enemy and then underneath each skill it'll say when its special condition takes place so it's kind of like more I don't know if streamline is the right word, but generalized where it's just like you are behind the enemy. Here are the skills you have equipped that will that will have a bonus if you're behind the enemy or things like that. And I remember in Xenoblade Chronicles 2 when I was writing the combat guide for that. Uh, it's like, man, there's a ton of UI elements here. But just like in 3, uh, once you understand all the how all the components fit together, you're appreciative for everything on screen because it it all does make sense, even though it's a bit overwhelming at first. Yeah. Uh, and I think I was, it, it, the, uh, I was reading the Silicon Era review, and this is one of those things that's just like true, but it you know kind of depends on how you look at it. Uh, well, I don't know how to put this, but they basically said that Xenoblade Three they were pretty positive on it, but it doesn't do a whole lot to like um, to like sell itself to people who aren't like big with JRPGs already. Like basically, what they were saying was there's kind of a big barrier to like playing this game like to a broader audience because of all the mechanics and all the tutorials and all the, you know, just all the density to the, to the, to the systems that are pretty, you know, unique to, especially to Xenoblade. And like, that's true. I don't think that necessarily like should affect, you know, your score of it or whatever. Cause obviously people who play Xenoblade kind of know what they're getting into with that sort of, with, with how like the mechanics are doled out and how the that, tutorial that, that is pretty much it. That's interesting. Cause that's like pretty much like when they hear that say, like I need a citation needed. Cause I know a lot of people who picked up Xenoblade two as their first JRPG and they loved it, huh. you know? So I, uh, like, I, I'm interested to see, like, do you know, like if that, that'll end up being true for three, but like, you know, but, Xenoblade 2, a lot of people had a lot of like, they felt overwhelmed with this battle system, but I, uh, there was also a lot of people that like, they picked it up as their first Japanese RPG because of the way that it looked and its character designs. And like, they're just like, oh, this looks cool, you know? And like, there's, there's a lot of like, 
um stories out there of people like going yeah this is the first time i played like uh, like one of these rpgs and like they it was just a, a magical experience for them and like uh, you know, I've had several friends like that, and like that's well, really I, I remember all, all of us played, played hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, and, they, and, they, and, hard, part of the yeah, and a lot of them are like, Xenoblade Three is going to be my second JRPG after that. Like, like well, I remember really when cool. the Definitive Edition was coming out, there was a ton of conversation about people who skipped the first game because it was like an unknown quantity on the Wii initially. Uh, didn't have you know as an appealing of a, a generally appealing art style, and so a lot of people who played two then decided to revisit three or sorry, not three definitive edition because their experience with two was so profound. And I think as far as my experience is, you know, like three as limited as it is, seems like it's that's the gateway, whether you were on board with the series with two or coming on with three, like it seems like the, the barrier is just where it was. And it's hard to put my, ourselves, at least myself, in an experience like, all right, if I hadn't played a Xenoblade game before, what would I think of this? And I just think the like the the cooldown based auto attack like combat system fundamentals might take a bit of getting used to. But I also kind of feel like those sorts of combat systems, uh, especially like people who have played more MMOs recently, that has they've gotten more popular, have gotten more like exposure where maybe that's not quite a, such a weird hurdle where people aren't comparing the combats in xenoblade to something like well it's like it's like a traditional lineup turn-based rpg only your auto attack only your attacks are automatic like it's not it's not as out there as it was when xenoblade one released when it was kind of yeah, more the, of a weird acquired taste uh, yeah that's not, like, definitely like you can play it a more traditional way but uh you know you can play it a more proactive way as well where like when your cooldowns are up on that playable character you can switch to another character on the fly and like control them when they because they'll have their skills, you know, mm -hmm. up and ready to go. So like you don't always have to like uh, play by the game's like quote unquote rules of like if you want if you want a standard like MMO experience like that, you can it'll work and you'll be totally fine. But if you also want to like just want to be continue cycling through characters and like making like being more in control of, like their arts and their executions and their timings, you can do that too. Because you know during that downtime and you're waiting for cooldowns. You know, it's not going to make a big difference whether you're controlling a person auto attacking or not. And the game has the versatility and flexibility, you know, to accommodate that as well. Like, there's no there's no downtime or to switching to a character. It's all seamless. You don't have to go through a menu and like manually switch to another character. You can just do it on the fly. And I think that's like th that's really really like cool of them to do that. Like, it's there's like no there there could be no downtime if you don't want it to. Like you. Well, that kind of reminds me of experience the way you want it to. That kind of reminds me of the way that Final Fantasy VII Remake is described. Obviously, it doesn't have an auto attack system, but it has a similar system as as you do your general combos with your hits, you you fill in your ATB bar, and then you can actually do your abilities. And with the expectation that you're swapping between your party members as their ATB bars are full to unleash their more interesting, uh, unique attacks, and like that. That was an acquired taste for some people as well who are used to playing these games. Action RPGs is like, well, I'm just going to play as this single character. Or even in Xenoblade 1 where it's like, uh, how many people played through that game initially just playing as Shulk? Because there wasn't a whole lot of incentive to switch to other characters until people kind of learned how it feels to play Dunban as your evade tank or, or Melia as your combo uh, ether character or things like that. So I also just kind of think that more games now and now more jrpgs are kind of allowing for that sort of gameplay stylings where yes it's an action rpg where you control an individual character but there's like flexibility where if you want to play as holy as noah you can or if you want to switch off between the characters in combat the game allows for that too because the system is versatile enough to allow you to do that 
So you're not even this far yet, Brian, but like once you get to the class changing. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Uh, so like I, I think CD or Alex Seedhouse, who we mentioned earlier, who we were kind of playing this game alongside for review um, for a different outlet. Uh, he was playing as like only Noah to begin with. And he I know like when he switched Noah to a healer class, he was like wasn't really like he, he tried at first to just stick with Noah. And he's just like, I don't really like playing the healer. So I'm assuming at some point he just finally uh, acquiesced and switched to a different character because you get to a point where any character can be any class. So it's really more like which class do you want to control rather than which character. Um, I kind of like playing as the defenders because I kind of liked uh, having my own control over having the, you know, the, the aggro and having the enemies attacking me and me kind of like kiting their attacks away from everyone else or towards everyone else, depending on what the, uh, with how the tank worked. But, uh, that's the thing is, uh, you'll be switching which character you're controlling a lot based on which, what, what their classes happen to be, which of course throughout the game, you're going to be switching them up all the time. So I think it'd be pretty weird if you only played as Noah while you switched to classes, but you could do it if you wanted. Yeah. I mean, like that, that's the, that's the thing I mentioned in my review where like people will come at a crossroads of like, what they value more because like if they like playing a certain character that certain character like Snowba, for example will be cycling through attacker or tank and healer because you see like you want him to like learn more like classes to like get more ma- like transferable master arts to, to uh, for certain setups or if like if you want, want to like main a role if you want to like main like a tank or an attacker you'll constantly be switching through characters because they'll be like just at, the, at a time where like hey i'm learning this class now um you know and, and there's no there's no really downsides of like picking one it's not like xenoblade one where like you're missing a lot when you're not controlling shulk because you don't have you're not doing monado arts you know you, you don't have kind of manual control over like exactly uh, which monado art is coming out while on this game there's really no downside of like playing whoever you want because because of the class system and there's no downsides of like certain people like you know, equipping a class. There's no. It's not like Senna, for example, always has to be like a like an attacker role. She can be a tank uh, or an effective healer because, like, the only the only thing that will be different between them is how fast they level up those classes. But that's it. Like, other than that, when they rank them up, when they level them up, they'll be just as effective. And you equip them with like gems and accessories and skills. Uh, like, it's it's no big deal. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's like a really cool like refreshing thing that like i don't i don't feel like i have to like optimize like who i want to play as because the game like isn't really really about that um per se and uh as for me like when it came to like roles like i was mainly doing attackers but for, like for some tougher content like if i wanted to like go explore like uh, a certain region and had like uh enemies that are like several levels higher like I would like a takeover tank role because like the AI in this game is generally pretty good about the getting to their positions and get and firing off skills um that'll inflict like uh stat like you know break topple uh type deals. So I, I, never I, maybe, I hope my memory isn't playing tricks on me, but like right early in the game, Noah can break and Lance can topple. And it feels yeah. like every single time I break, Lance topples, which it feels yeah. like is a, a big cry from zeta blade one where it's like please topple them please come on yeah do it pretty, <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know they're yeah, pretty they're, good they're pretty, <laughs> yeah they're, they're willing to wait on you to do that but yeah i guess since we're mentioning the class system right now that's a whole can of worms that really separates xenoblade 3 from um from yeah, past xenoblade games 
Um, because like everybody calls it like their default class, and you know, once you get to chapter two, you'll start learning about oh, you can go switch to other classes, and as you're like leveling up other classes, they'll start getting these things called master arts that I mentioned earlier, and those are like the skills that you can take over to other classes um, when they switch over, and then like the like your whole class selection just gets more and more over time once the hero system comes into play and these are like characters you meet along your journey um where they join you and like and you can switch into their classes like at first only one of your characters can switch can switch into them but as you fight alongside the hero and or like the character who was wearing like the, the their class the you know you'll the other characters will gradually unlock their class for them to use and like you know there's a whole like i'm very interested to see like what sort of party compositions people will end up liking and like going for because there's so many ways you can tackle this game like there's no right answer there's like no class limits on your party it's like you can have like five attackers and one healer if you want or you can oh, do like uh, i was uh doing a guide last night for rpg site where i was going through all the classes and their class skills and their class arts and like writing them all down and of course, as I was playing the game, I kind of went through it a little bit, but not as thoroughly as I did writing the guide up and like looking through all their arts, you know, kind of, you know, theory crafting in my head, like, oh, I didn't realize that this class had this ability. And I wonder how that would pair with this class. Uh -huh. Like one of the classes, for instance, is uh, um, this isn't a specific example, but one of the classes, for instance, uh, is in Cursor, who is you get from Alexandria, who is a, an optional hero. So you can miss her or skip her. Um, but her class is is focused on critical hits. And when you level up the class, you get, actually, let me pull up my own guide here about like what master arts you get um, for this class. But I, I think it's one of the stronger attacker classes in the game because uh, they focus on critical hits. And especially if you're doing fighting like a, a high level unique enemy in a chain attack where you got like a 900% damage bonus or whatever, if you can get a critical hit off, you can do, a, you can like wipe off huge chunks of, of an enemy's health bar uh from this class alone uh in a in a in a chain attack so so yeah like one of their master skills is that successful attacks boost critical rate by two percent um and then another master skill is boosts critical rate of auto attacks by 150 percent and then um they have class arts master arts that are that are basically high percentage chance critical hit arts and if you could mix those abilities with other classes that are like that have a higher attack skill, like for example, uh, well, I'll just say a later class because it's a bit of a spoiler. But uh, there's some really neat things that I think you could put together that I haven't even sat down and like thought about all the things you can do. But it's very, very, very flexible. Is the point I'm getting at? Yeah, I, well, I, I think it would be, I think it's really handy that like just having like a, a whole like when you're that far into the game, you have most if not all the classes unlocked. Just like having a, a handy list of like, okay, what are all the capabilities? Of this class and like you can like just having like a text document of like theory crafting is like sort of beneficial because like well while, while the in-game ui is fine it's hard to theory craft only through the in-game ui because you're going back and forth but like actually having it written out in front of you and like starting to like mix and match things of like theoretical builds is kind of like an interesting prospect i remember like when playing xenoblade 2 and getting into some of the late game stuff the builds that were suggested that I, I started Googling because once you do like all the, the combat challenges where you're fighting 
not only are you fighting enemies that are like higher than the max level, but like you can like it, there was like late game. I forget if their expansion pass or not challenges that made it harder than that. And I remember reading some like off the wall strategies, like have a play as Ricky as your tank with like some sort of lightning gear. I don't remember what it was, but it was like a very weird, obscure kind of setup of equipment and skills that ended up working like really effectively. I'm like, I would have never played as or not Ricky. Tora, sorry, wrong no pun. Uh, playing Tora as the tank with a certain set of abilities. So it'd be interesting to see, like, once the game is out for a significant period of time, people are coming up with their own strategies, where maybe a high level super boss that Adam and Josh might have struggled with, someone's like, well, I just did this, this, and this, and it was easy because I completely nullified like half the boss's abilities. So it, it's already kind of cool. Even early on, I can just see how there's lots of options to to outfit your your party in a way where you can kind of come up with the, the synergies that work really effectively in certain situations and finding the, and having the players that are clever enough and, you know, uh, they're smart enough to kind of come up with those and find those synergies and make them work like the way that Adam has kind of found as he's going through the list uh, that he's wrote up. Yeah. And, and like there's like Xenoblade 3 is also like not completely like new territory, right? It's built on the backs of one and mm -hmm. two. So, and even Xenoblade X. So there's like a lot of systems in that game that were like, in those previous games, but like tweaked in a way to like not make them frustrating anymore. Like this game has like gem crafting from one, for example, except you don't have to worry about managing the temperature or character affinities to like get like a desired gem. This was just much more straightforward of like, hey, bring me these mats and we'll I give you a gem. <laughs> I appreciate how there's this one like conversation between like Lands and uh, Riku about, hey, what, why don't I try uh, doing the gem crafting? Then like, like, Riku's just like mortified saying, no, 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 it'll take you 10 years to learn how to do this. <laughs> I remember this. So basically, Riku is such a boss that he makes it easy for the players. Thanks, Riku. Well, I remember when the uh when the meet when the marketing for the game first showed Jeb crafting, it was like 50% of people going like sweet, fuck yeah. And people were like, oh no, oh god. So it sounds like they hit a good balance where they get they make gem crafting. Old, I miss old gem crafting. Do I do appreciate that once you build a gem, it's built for everyone. You can just equip it to anyone. Yes. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also like props to them, like Riku and Manana, not annoying. I, I like Riku and Manana. Unlike Tora and Riki from as your no pawn party members from past games, I, I like Riku and Manana. Tora okay, like, okay. I want to see. I want to see how good your guys' memory are compared okay. to mine because my memory sucks. Does anyone here remember what the no pawns are in the uh, DLC for Definitive Edition? What their names are? Eno and oh. uh, I, there's a that was the green one's name is Kino and something else. Do I don't only remember, remember that. that because one of their names is Kino. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I, only, I only remember like the Nopon Ranger thing, or I don't know, the it's some sort of special attack where you based on how many you found. Like, yeah, Nopon yeah. Rangers for all time, it, or I don't know what a, they say. It was almost, almost like a pigment element or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, like yeah, you know. But, but like you know, field skills are here too. But field skills are like way not like how it was in like Xenoblade Two. Like field for, for skills. The... Go, go ahead. Uh, go on. Okay. Sorry, well, I, was, I was still I was still on the no pun talk. Oh, I was yeah, gonna go say like Rick, Riku's English voice, like it. <laughs> the voice actor doesn't sound like a no pun at all. At least not compared to the way that Tora and Ricky 
or voiced, uh-huh. but he still like speaks like a nopon, like the, his word choice, which is an interesting mix, at least so far early in the game. Where it's like he doesn't sound like a nopon. Oh wait, but he still talks like one. This is kind of fun. I don't know. I like Riku so far. Yeah, Riku is uh, really funny. He's really funny. Yeah, but, um, you know this game. This game also has field skills like previous Xenoblade games, but it's very much like. It's not like leveling up a field skill to like open a treasure chest like in two. It's just basically throughout the story, uh, you get two field skills. The other two you get from here uh, recruiting optional heroes, and that's a total of four field skills. Um, that's all, those are the only field skills. You don't have to level them up. You don't have to do anything with them once you have them. They're they're there, and it's like they like there's just so many like things about three that's like okay, we you know we were experimenting with stuff in like previous games and like we've come to the conclusion that like this game will just have so many systems but we won't like make any of them like get in your way uh which i appreciate because if it's such a weird fine balance to like uh to to create like the only downfall um in the for this game besides visual fidelity because this game um is i don't know how about how, how you feel about it uh you uh james and brian but like this game is like just aliased out the ass. Like this game's also, like visual quality is. Yeah, I. Yeah, I'm a mess. I don't want to yeah. say too much more about yeah. my thoughts on the performance and the resolution. I think I'm glad that it's not over sharpened to hell like Xenoblade Two was. I prefer this, mm-hmm. but especially once you get your full party and you have a hero with you and you're fighting a bunch of enemies. Not only does the resolution dip, but depending on the location, the frame rate can drop, which can be really annoying if you're trying to cancel arts. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Oof. Yeah. I had I haven't uh, encountered anything quite as bad as Gormat in Xenoblade 2. I remember Gormat in Xenoblade 2 just to all the foliage. I think oh, they eventually never get that bad. It's it's playable. It's just like it gets to the point where it's like I I see people online saying, oh, the performance is like miles better than Xenoblade 2. There's nothing like that. And it's like, I understand this isn't something you really start noticing until like 15, 20 hours in. But man, (laughs) I've been mostly playing in portable, which if I remember right for Xenoblade 2 was preferable for performance just because your your resolution was scaled lower so i don't know if it's better or worse if you're portable or docked in this game it's one of those things though like for me i've kind of like resigned myself to it like yeah it's a xenoblade game on a on a slightly underpowered console like it is what it is no point like dwelling on it as much as much as it can be frustrating at times when the dynamic resolution dips down it's something yeah, that uh, I notice, but I don't really factor into like my it, enjoyment. It's one of those things that's like it's the it's a cost of being in a Switch, right? You can't really dock the game for being on the Switch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like that's the hardware that they were given with. That's the hardware limitations. You can tell that they really, 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 really stretched out the power of the Tegra Three <laughs> uh, with this game, um, which is you know that's that's not on them. That's just that's the the price you pay for being owned by Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I think the only really thing that really irked me about this game is like the 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 way in which you get quests, uh, especially later on. I was um, going to ask about quests because I remember like Xenoblade One is kind of notorious for having quests littered all over the place, and most of them are fetchy and don't even resolve in a lot of interesting stuff going on. You just kind of do them if you're a completionist. Xenoblade Two, the quest design is a little better, and the fact that it was almost all the quests are designed around the, like empowering up your different uh your blades 
was a fun aspect to them. So I was curious how you guys, you and Adam, and I guess James as well, felt about how quests are incorporated in three. I've only done the early enough quests where they're very, they're almost still tutorial in nature for me, so I can't really comment on them further. So I guess I'll just hand it off to Adam. Adam, how do you feel about how quests are both implemented in Xenoblade 3 and just the quest design itself? Okay, so first of all, Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, if I remember correctly, had more than 400 quests. And a lot of them were literally called like, I don't remember exactly, but it was just like... They're called like Gathering Quest 1, 2, yeah, it was like 3. Gather like quest, literally number like them. Enemy Quest 1, 2, 3. And it was like literally literally like a checklisty quest. And they didn't even give them a name. Uh, Xenoblade 2 got, got rid of that already. But uh, I think the main thing is... Um, first, let me talk about like comparing Hero Quests and Rare Blade Quests. So Heroes in... Xenoblade Chronicles 3 are sort of similar to Rare Blades in 2 in that they aren't your, like your main cast of characters, but they are characters that you recruit and you can uh, they participate in battle. You can't play as them, though. Uh, unlike Rare Blades, heroes you earn through either the story or side quests, uh, not through any sort of gotcha system. But they each have quests associated with them. Now, in Xenoblade Chronicles 3, their quests are like part of a sort of a mini storyline usually involving their colony. So rare blade quests in Xenoblade Chronicles 2, they often do you guys remember the affinity chart? Yeah, uh, yep. Rare blade had those and they had like nodes on them. And each node you had to like do a thing to like unlock it. Sometimes it was like doing a certain type of ability, sometimes it was like exploring certain regions or I remember somewhere like fall a certain distance or it was really weird. Um, hero quests, on the other hand, are just more part of like a storyline with that hero and their colony that they're usually a part of. And it feels a, like a, a better flow. You don't have to do like these weird gamey gimmicky things to like unlock the node to access their heart to heart. Then you can get to their quest or whatnot. So it feels more like a side story or, you know, kind of a, a little mini story about that hero and their colony. Um, that's not pertinent to like the main narrative of the game, but you know, it stands about their hero, their colony. Each colony has a little bit of a different issue that they're dealing with or like kind of a, a flavor uh, of what the colony, how they act in their rules and uh, things like that. So, and a lot of the other quests that aren't necessarily hero quests are also tie into that. So I think it does a pretty good job of avoiding just like fetchy type quest stuff uh, and more in terms of like these little mini stories around the colonies that you meet. Also, they're like all voiced, so... That helps. Well, the hero quests are some yeah, of the regular the hero quests. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was actually so. when I I've, I've, I haven't encountered the hero system yet, but I actually kind of appreciated. I kind of f fall back and forth upon how much voice acting I appreciate. I remember when I was playing games like Divinity Original Sin 2, where one of its I know it's a very very different style of RPG, but one of its selling points was that. I hope I'm remembering this correctly, that, that basically everything was voiced. And I remember in my review for that game, I praised it. But as I'm doing like these little incidental quests in the early parts of Xenoblade 3, I'm like, you know what? I actually kind of appreciate that these side quests aren't voiced uh, just because they're a little bit more just task task oriented in nature. They're more just like unfolding the game systems rather than being narrative focused. So I kind of do actually appreciate that there's like voiced and unvoiced content within the game. It's, yeah, it's kind of it's, it. it's kind of it's kind of an opinion that I kind of change as time goes on. There might be another game where, depending on the quality of the voice acting, I might really appreciate that everything is voiced. If I was just playing a little mini quest, like not a hero quest, just kind of a a low level quest, and it was voiced, 
there's a good chance I'd probably just click through the voice dialogue anyway, right. like once I read it. Um, whereas some of the hero quests actually have like like scenes. You know, they're not as elaborate as, you know, the main story scenes, of course, but, you know, there's actually like directed, voiced cutscenes that involve these heroes. It reminds um, me of, um, if you guys remember the near replicant remastered, like the one of the new things, but I was like, literally every single thing was voiced in that game. Even like the fucking go get three bear shits uh, side, gu- <laughs> side quests uh, in the game. Bear like, shits. It was like, it, it's so weird. It's just like you just go up to this town's lady. It's like, yeah, I really, really need this bear shit. It's like, did you really need to voice this? It's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So cool. the thing that I kind of want to say is, I feel like the way that hero quests are handled kind of reminds me of the quests specifically dealing with your party members in Xenoblade Cross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, kind of reminds me of that in a lot of ways. What were those yeah. quests called again? Because each of those, like Xenoblade Cross, is like. It's sort of similar. It has like 20 something different characters you can party up with, and each has a quest line. I don't remember if they had a special name, but, but yeah. I forgot. I forgot they were like, because I know like the organization. I know they had Heart to Hearts just like the yeah. other games, and they had their own quest. I just don't remember if they, what they, what they, if they had they a special called. name. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot. No, no, I know in a lot of uh, Adam and Josh's uh, written previews for this game you've talked about the heart-to-heart systems in previous xenoblades and how it is absent in xenoblade 3 i just want to give you an opportunity to talk about that here on the podcast in the in the in the verbal uh framework about what xenoblade 3 does compared to the other games i think i think removing it is actually a net benefit not only is sort of like grinding affinity levels between characters just kind of tedious where it's like oh i got to put these characters in my party to grind up their affinity or you have to have a high affinity to do good gem crafting or you have to have the high enough affinity so the heart to heart unlocks and it's just like i think basically they removed all that entirely and instead they just kind of have more fewer but more like well-written scenes just between the characters that take place naturally in the game like they're just slotted in like in the progression of things that happen in the game and i think in terms of just like writing that's preferable. Like, I don't need to, like... I think in, like, Xenoblade 1, if you raise the affinity between, like, you know, Shulk and Dunban, I think there's, like, four different heart-to-hearts you can see with them or whatever. But they're, they're usually just, like, little, like, quick little back-and-forths, like, maybe four or five sentences long. And it might have, like, little tidbits of, like, interesting characterization, but it, you know, it, you'd, you'd click through a couple of dialogue boxes and it was done in 10 seconds or whatever. Whereas here, it's, like... Chapter three and chapter four is where these these really come into play. Is there will literally just be a scene between like uh, chapter four? I actually like the scene a lot between Uni and Mio. They just talk to each other for about two minutes. It it doesn't move the plot forward. There's maybe just a little bit of backstory revelation, but it's not like a plot dump. It's not like here is my backstory and I'm going to explain it to you very robotically. It just kind of feels like a natural conversation between the characters. And I think that is, I like that better than having some heart to heart between Neo, Mio and Neo, Mio and Uni, excuse me. And, uh, you know, you fill up some affinity bar and then you go to some marker on the map and then they exchange three sentences and then, yeah, you get a heart to heart, you know, and, I, and then you get I a choice. It. And one of the choices is the correct choice that fills up. Yeah. Your you don't have to work up. And you don't have the to incorrect choice. Like, there's, there's no like, Mass Effect or Persona, like Social Link, sort of, you know, we've got to look up what the correct choices is to get the most hearts or whatever. It's like, no, it's just a natural scene between characters. 
the yeah, scene that sounds- comes to mind when I think about this also, it's like it's like it's a it's a genuine heart to heart moment without like the heart to heart like in game mechanic uh, plastered on it is like some it's like um end of chapter three, early chapter four, um like the big events happen and like and Lon's is troubled by something that happens and like like Nova is like trying to convey to him, it's like it's painful, but we've got to move on. And like, yeah, that's it, good. It really hits like you know, Lons doesn't know how to process it because he's like these, these like sorts of feelings that like have haunted him, but like he doesn't know how to like convey it, how to like express it to people. And like, and Uni goes up to him like when he's like trying to cool off like his with argument with Nova, and like uh, Uni's like you know, Nova's not trying to get after you for like you know not not processing it like like uh, the wrong way. It's just like. He just wants you to like you know, like ca- kind of move on, move forward. We can't let this like, like. like I actually remember Noah's line. Still. I actually yeah. remember Noah's line in the scene, and I think this is where we can talk about voice acting a bit. I think the mm-hmm. voice acting is much improved over too. Yes. Um, it's a big game with a lot of lines and a lot of characters, but overall, it's much better than two. But I remember Noah's line in that scene when he's talking to Lance is specifically, "But we are still alive." That's his line, and. Like, I remember that scene, or I remember that line in that scene because some of the voice acting is quite well done. And it's not like a big, dramatic, epic, you know, angry line or anything like that. It's just a really well-delivered scene with good lines. And uh, I also looked this up. Uh, I believe Xenoblade Chronicles 2, the English dubbing, was done at Nintendo of Europe, uh, like, in-house. This was done, Xenoblade Chronicles 3 was done in a new place. Let me, I think it's it's called like Liquid Violet, I believe. Let me look it up. Who is a studio in England. So it's still British voice actors and whatnot. And they, in the past, they opened in 2008 or 9. And they primarily done like Activision Blizzard games. Um, but apparently just recently, as recently as 2019, they started to get into like the English dubbing. And I think if this is one of their first projects for like oh, wow. English dubbing. That's crazy. It's such a big project. While, while all voice acting, you go through similar processes, dubbing is specifically a little different because of how you have to match lip flaps and, and whatnot, and obviously the translation aspect of it. But they did a pretty good job overall, and it sounds like this is one of their very first like dubbing projects, even though they've been around a while doing other voice acting. Um, but yeah, there's... weird to say, but it's like... I really, really loved Xenoblade 1's dub, and uh, Xenoblade 2's... Yeah, and Xenoblade 2's dub was kind of... Well, it makes sense because that entire game was kind of like caught out the oven. Yeah, I think I think that one, they must have not had like time or chance to... They just had to like speak the line and move on. Like no retakes, not much yeah. maybe context given. It's just like you just have to... We just have to spit out these lines and get them recorded. Well, this game like seems like they had time to do it properly. Yeah, I feel like Xenoblade 3, if nothing else, like the one thing that really kind of showcases how like relatively smooth of a development this must have been it's just seeing how like solid the dub is and like how well directed everything is it's like this is like it, it's really hard to describe especially even like well even early on you get a taste of it so i'm sure like brian you're starting to see some of it but it's like the further in you get it's like almost every character even like the side ones and these like side quests are like so so well directed it's like man this is one of the best dubs i've ever seen i actually well, really I, I, really like uh this is way later in the game i'm gonna spoil a character's name it won't mean anything but i really like gondor's voice i don't know if her <laughs> voice like necessarily 
uh, will be everyone's taste, but I just, it suits her personality, I think, at least how she's portraying the dub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to try to emulate it, but it just, it works. Well, I already yeah. talked about Riku's voice. Um, all the other voices you mentioned earlier when you're talking about the characters independent of their voices, they have like their quirks and their personalities, but it's not like this is my singular identifying character trait. I am angry or I am cocky oh. or I am I am hilarious or I, you I always imagine, make jokes. Could you imagine if a character like Zeke was in this game? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like, so when you're describing these characters and, and factoring in their voice acting as well, you almost have to be like careful and cautious because they don't have like singular trait. Like, Describe who Uni is. Like Uni seems a little bit more aloof, uh, but not cocky. Cares about her allies. Like you have to like you have to take like sentences to try to like piece together who the character is because you can't boil them down to like a singular trait that their voice matches perfectly or whatever. Uh, she's a little stern. Um, obviously, Lance is a little bit more cocky, and the game kind of goes into that. But he's not like hot headed, arrogant favorite, all the time sort of thing. I, I think my favorite voice line for uh, you can get for uh, clearing a battle is when uh, uh, Lance just says something. I was the MVP. You were all thinking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they have enough uh, of that characterization so that they're not like blank slates, but they balance it so well where it's not just like immediately aggravating or one note where they can't grow or change from it. Really I, I really, I really just see like you know how what what people think of Senna as uh, as they progress in the game because Senna is one of those characters that they explore, but it's like later on, and she's a really, really interesting character. I like Senna a lot. Me too. Me too. And I will say it matches with Lons really well. So early on, Noah is maybe a little bit boring and passive, but I also understand that I'm like two hours in to a massive game, so I'm giving I'm yeah. giving it time. Just early on, he's a little bit more of a backseat, more of an observer. But I'm okay with that. Even now, like, I actually really, really like how with him, it's like, it's not that he has no personality, but he's very, like, comfortable just, like, uh, like yeah, observing the party and observing stuff from the sidelines. And, like, the game even understands that, like, that part of his character is that observance. So, like, you'll get um, points where Tyon will pipe in about something. And very specifically, they, like, he, like, calls on Noah. It's like, what do you think? Because like even early on, they they have that understanding where it's like, okay, yeah. I think early in the game, well. early in the game, it's actually kind of it almost feels like at moments like Tyon is the group's leader. Uh, and obviously, once you get more into like the main story, it focuses more on like why Noah is the main character and whatnot. But like Tyon, he's got a he's got obviously a lot. Uh, I think he works as a good balance to the rest of the uh, rest of the cast. He's obviously. Uh, very logical and thoughtful and whatnot but um early on in the game it almost feels like he's sort of making decisions for the group and like you said he calls on noah at times like hey what do you think um so and overall i just think the group the the cast they, they work out really well together i yeah, just um, saw ensemble it's it, very impressive it, it's shocking like i don't think i can name another rpg that manages to nail such a relatively large like cast dynamic so early on it's like shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have five characters within like the first 45 minutes and each of them has their, has their role. And yeah, in the game, you talked earlier, uh, James, about how 
chapters one and two are a bit more railroaded, but it's not to an extent where you feel inconvenienced. Uh, like there's other games where like your the systems unfold at an agonizingly slow pace. Or I'm thinking this is a very different style RPG, but like Final Fantasy 13, where the characters are doled out so slowly, the mechanics are doled out so slowly, and the game's like, do you understand this yet? We're gonna make sure you know how to do this before oh. we introduce anything new to potentially you know put you off kilter. Uh, I, actually three, I actually mentioned this in the preview episode, I think, of the podcast cast it's it reminds me of uh of fire emblem three houses a bit where you basically get the whole cast at the beginning the main cast and i think that helps in terms of characterization rather than you know in a fire emblem game or in any other jrpg where you get like characters slowly dulled to you kind of it can feel if it's not done well like a later joined character just doesn't is either doesn't get a lot of characterization or maybe a character you get early is sort of forgotten about later things like that where in this game like, that you kind of have the whole group all at once all together i think it really helps build them like well even, even in xenoblade 2 it's kind of like here's nia one of your earlier party members in gourmet and then here's morag in more ordained yeah. and it's not as bad xenoblade 2 does a decent job of making sure that older characters stay relevant but like you're in, you're introduced to zeke pretty darn late and he probably in my memory gets the least amount of character development because like he gets all of this stuff in uh his region of the game and then past that point it's like well you've you finished his arc uh, yeah hope you enjoyed it sort xenoblade of thing. 3 does not have this sort of issue where like like there are other games where it's like chapter three is character three's you know chapter and then chapter four is character four's chapter and chapter five is character five's chapter and it kind of feels a little bit like robotic where it's just like you kind of sequentially go through each character's like moment whereas xenoblade 3 doesn't have that issue where it, the whole cast is pretty darn good the whole way through obviously like i know senna's comes a little bit later just because someone's has to right um but and tyon's maybe a little bit earlier in terms of like when he gets most of his shine but i think overall it does a really good job I said that like we, we are for, we are forgetting to talk about the the real MVP of Xenoblade Three, and I'm kind of shocked we haven't mentioned it yet. How do we all feel about motherfucking Mwamba, dude? <laughs> MVP. But I hey, guess maybe to I, bounce off of that, there are a lot of like side characters yeah. that you know <laughs> maybe don't play a big role in the story, but you know they're believable. Yes, functional the, side characters. I, I'm glad you really really I, I, that that was used as a segue for that because uh. uh Brian and maybe James will get to it, but just keep these names in mind. I truly love Borealis and Travis. Borealis, yeah. I love Borealis. Borealis so much. Is great. <laughs> also, Kite. Oh my god, Kite. <laughs> I don't know if Kite is good, but he's entertaining. He's fucking Kite is such a shitter, but it's hard to like not like sort of care by the end too. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I, th- there's a lot of like good like. And, like side NPCs in the colonies that you see. Uh Chickity. Um oh the 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 ardent breeding, the believing that oh, how, how yeah how, how babies are made. Oh my god. So the, the, so the, there's not the quality view is so funny. Oh my god. Okay. I love but it, not funny like Colony Mew is funny, but it's also really super heartfelt. It like, is. It, it is. It's like it's like, it's like it's like childish naivety, right? Yeah. They feel like a summer camp. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't really a big spoiler, but like a, a colony later on, like there's gonna be like a side quest for like you have to breed Ardunes. And like that like the, there's main there's, there's mainly like a side quest uh character that's like a child, like in, in charge of this. Her name's Tassar. Tassar, yes. 
And so the the way they think about like how long it takes for like an Arden to like get made or like get to to give birth is like they, they they don't know how like birth actually works like you know with animals and stuff like we've reproductive systems. So they're like, um, come back when it rains again, and then you know, um, yeah, and then they'll game it. mechanic where you have to have it rain. Yes, because that's what they think causes Arden to get bored. Yeah, it's really. But so. but again, it's not just like this sort of silly thing. I, I that or that colony has some really heartfelt storylines. Yes. So yeah. the, the way you, yeah, the way you even kick off that colony is uh, is the mm-hmm. hell of a thing. So but yeah, I guess I mean, I, maybe bouncing off of that point, when it comes to like side content and some main content in Xenoblade Three, a lot of it is like you start out at Colony Nine. You pretty soon you, early on you meet. Well, I guess I should say in like chapter three, you can finally go to Colony Gamma, which is where Mio and their group is from. And then throughout the game, you meet all these various colonies. Like there's Colony Four, there's Colony Tau, Colony Eleven, Colony Thirty, Colony Mew, and like they each have their own like hero. Usually, not all of them, but and then they each have like their own little quest line or storyline. And I think they all have like a little bit of a different flavor, but a lot of them are interesting and a lot of them are well done. And yeah, I really some like of them. The way- really, some of them don't necessarily like tie into the main plot other than being you know set in the same world but there is some really i think one of our other staffers cullen was saying this in our chat where he when he was playing the earlier xenoblade games he said he wasn't really doing the side content because he wasn't really interesting to him but he's in chapter three which is kind of when this uh all this stuff kind of opens up to you and he said he's he's doing the side content this time because it's a lot more interesting to him uh yeah. in, in the uh you know compared to previous games and i would tend to agree I agree. Um, you're missing out a lot if you just decide, nah, I'm not going to go to Colony Iota. I'm not going to do any of that. It's just like, eh, there's like, there's the, like, a, like a, good, a good factor of like why I gave this game a ten on the site is because of the way the like the the how the world develops in the eyes of other colonies. Because every colony that you run into, like, and there's like a problem with Xenoblade One, where like sometimes colonies felt too samey in in, in Xenoblade One, and in in three, they they are very distinct in the way that they develop and like the, what their people believe in. Uh, the way that they were like what they were taught like under like when they were still serving their nation and like and what they're like the 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 residents and their outlook on life and how they like you know just kind of um how they develop o- over time it's all very different angles and like and it, it falls under this umbrella of like ex- existentialism of like what it actually means to like be like kind of forge your own path and how do you move forward how do you find a, like a life past like what you used to believe in? And they all bear, tackle it from very different angles and the way that like, and there's like you just meet all sorts of interesting personalities uh, throughout this whole thing. It's it's so interesting. Like I, I, I once I start a side quest chain, it's hard for me to stop. I just, I have to see where this goes. Uh, uh, another character, there's it's, Xenoblade Three is also. I, I almost feel like we're getting to the point where I might be saying too much. Not necessarily story spoilers, but just you know. Yeah. some surprises but there are characters in the game who when i first met them i was i i was i was kind of reading them as kind of their surface personality uh, for example ashura um who's another hero in the game and i was kind of like eh, i'm not really feeling them they feel kind of gimmicky and then you do the ascension quest and you're like how did this game make me feel about this character like this <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> like you're like like their whole colony dynamic is like insane and like in a really Uh-oh. amusing way but it's just like and but then like you start learning more and more about like why the is the way they are and it's like <laughs> god damn it all right game all right also 
I should avoid saying any more than this. Um, but side story, Senna. Like, how did how did that work like that? Like, oh, Christ. Yeah, I, I like at the very least, I recommend people do all the character ascension quests, do all the side, do all the hero and ascension quests. Yeah, especially do all the like the side story stuff for your for your main cast because they'll say side story colon this character. Absolutely, do do those because it is what it is like crucial like character, character development stuff. Yeah. yeah, and those it is. Oh man, I didn't think about that. Set so a side story. I'm like. Hearing you and one. hearing Adam and Josh talk about all these characters, including the fact that you were able to like rattle off side characters and like, what about Ashura? What about Kite? Oh, wow, that guy's great, or whatever. No, like that's the fact yeah. that you guys and mine and James's early impressions so far have spoken pretty glowingly about how this game's narrative presents itself, how its characters work, how its theming works. Um, and despite all of that, the game also. At least from my perspective, it starts out with a with a semi lengthy cutscene, but it opens up and lets you play relatively quickly. Usually, there's kind of like a give and take there, where it's like, yeah, it's narrative focused, but the game sometimes doesn't shut up often enough and just lets you play. Like right, like uh, I I've been spending a few hours in chapter one just like exploring the map and trying to find all the containers and the and the uh, husks that you gotta send on and things like that. Like the game doesn't compromise in any way to have the strengths that you and James, uh, you and Josh are uh, stating right now. So far, it's the fact that it manages to balance everything so well. I think uh, I'm looking at when I ever, whenever I see a nine or a ten on any review, not not just RPG site reviews. I'm like, yeah, but what are the caveats? Like, what are the footnotes? And yeah, you we've mentioned a couple uh, about how like the performance and things like that, but there really are like few and far between so far. I don't know the game. The fact that this game is managing to hit home runs in multiple aspects, I think, is a testament to like what uh, Monolith Soft has been able to learn from the series and their feedback from the other games, and kind of put it all together into this. If it, if it culminates in Xenoblade Chronicles three, it seems like like what a what a pinnacle for the series to have reached. Oh, actually, the, Nintendo posted an interview, like their own kind of like self interview with the creators, and they basically said we we want the series to continue. So yeah. there might there might be a Xenoblade Chronicles <laughs> yeah. four or, or X two, you know, who knows? Across two, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I, it is interesting because like when Adam and I were playing this very early on, like uh, before, you know, we could talk about it. Like him and I were like, like, are they going to make another Xenoblade game after? Because this feels like, and I stated very early in my review, it's like this game literally does feel like the ultimate game that like they were the Monolith Soft was striving was striving towards, like. Because it really clearly like takes a lot of lessons from ev- all the Xenoblade games they've done before, and like it like they found a way to like really really make it come together in a way that like it feels like it shouldn't, but it does because there's so many little parts about this game, and like it, it almost feels like a Jenga uh, tower of like if you if you if you messed up any part of this game in a certain manner, it feels like it would all come fa- tumbling apart, but it somehow sticks the landing and somehow makes you know all the things that count work and work in a really really pleasant splendid way so obviously we've been speaking about 
Xenoblade Chronicles 3 for over an hour now. And maybe in the future, there would be enough interest to do a sort of like a spoiler cast on this game. Once we have more of the cast members get to the end game, get to the, we'll have an, an open avenue to talk about later story developments and things like that if the interest is there. But in this spoiler-free context of just our initial impressions of the game, well, I say our initial impressions, your and Josh's full impressions of the games and mine, James's initial impressions, uh, is there any like... I don't know, a statement that you want to make for people that have potentially are have not played a Xenoblade game before or they're not sure, like they they played Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and they they it didn't gel with them or things like that. I don't know. What what going forward from here, what is your main takeaway from what Xenoblade 3 has accomplished? I would say I would say like in terms of like story and characters and tone, it's a happy medium between one and two. In terms of like gameplay, I think it's easily the like the least frustrating. Like one at moments may not be that fun to play. Like maybe Shulk's the only fun character to play as or Melia. And then there's moments late in the game where it kind of gets really more tedious. Like I know like the, some of the mechanist areas kind of get annoying. There's all that spike damage stuff. Remember that? Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? Spike? Yeah, spike. Yeah, yeah, you uh, get you te- yeah, topple spikes and things like that. Yeah, and like this game doesn't have any. I think there's like one of the character skills does like a spike effect, but it's you know that's about it. Um, you know, and then like Xenoblade Two obviously has all the gotcha stuff and the field skills and the infinity you know charts that you have to go through and the rare blades and whatnot. Whereas three, I feel think um, this sort of like class paradigm it goes through, I feel is probably one of the smoother like game implementations compared to the other two. So obviously you kind of have to have a taste for for like JRPGs and these sorts of mechanics to play this game. But I think it's a smoother ride than previous entries. So, yeah, um, I would say to people who like, who never played like a Xenoblade game before, I think it's still perfectly fine. If you just want to, you know, get to know these characters and get to like, know the world they inhabit. Like, I think it's perfectly fine to like start with this game. And like, maybe if you want to learn more about, you know, the worlds of like the prior two games, definitely, you know, go through those. I mean, to be I mean, honest, but, sorry but, to interrupt you very quickly yeah, here. Like in all in our, in our hour long discussion that we talked about and you know, everything we praised, almost none of that had to do with like knowing the previous two games. Like, yeah. You know, I, I feel like they're obviously you're going to miss a few things if you haven't played them, especially when it comes to like the main story later. But it's if you play Xenoblade 3 first without playing the others, you're basically putting yourself in the same set seat as the main characters, you know. Anyways, continue. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's just worth, like, seeing, like, hey, this could be what character interactions can be in, a, in an RPG, you know? Like, you don't see this kind of, like, character interactions and types of scenes, like, in most uh, RPGs these days. And it's so refreshing in that regard. Like it feel it feels so earnest and heartfelt and wholesome and like it's like you there are there are ways you can like tell an interesting story with interesting characters and not have to like pull on like uh, super exaggerated like reactions and responses to like get like a reaction out of you. It's something that like you, you it's one of those things like man, I I really wish more people can like play this game just to see like hey, this is what character writing can be in a game. I'm going to make a uh, comparison that makes absolutely no sense, but I feel <laughs> like uh, uh, the people here will understand what I mean by this. So far, Xenoblade 3's character interactions seems like an entire game where the characters interact like the characters of Trolls in the Sky the Third at the very end. 
Yeah, yeah, okay, I can see it. Yeah. So yeah, so for those that I haven't played that, like Trails in the Sky the Third obviously incorporates a lot of characters at that point. You've been playing through a whole trilogy, some of them uh, as protagonists for several games, from as some as protagonists for just one game. So having not finished or even gotten very far in Xenoblade 3, but having played the first the Trails in the Sky trilogy, like the fact that Xenoblade 3 ostensibly can get to that level of character interaction in a single title is like I'm I'm not surprised based on what I've seen so far and based on the way that Adam and and Josh and now James have described. Yeah, and, and like I, I've you know I'm not going to get into it, uh, but it is it is related to one of our news pieces as well. But yeah, uh, you know the soundtrack to this game is is so it's very different in the direction it takes from one and two. It's so it, much it's more so somber. Good. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. It's like oh man, like especially like. Xenoblade games like the area themes like you're used to them being like super bombastic most of the time that's maybe not the case here but it's like it fits the tone that the game's like going for so well and it's like I I haven't even heard most of the soundtrack but I'm pretty damn sure this is going to be my favorite soundtrack in the series already and then of course you have a lot of like the the flute themes and then they those those sort of like leitmotifs show up in other major scenes and other in other tracks and it's really good yeah. uh something that somebody pointed out to me uh early on which is insane if if this is actually what happened but uh the battle theme when you first start the game only has one flute once you get access to the other half of your party it adds an additional flute yep <laughs> absolutely damn that's neat and that's the the on the lead up to release um they had the, this as a developer interview feature on nintendo you know they uh interviewed takahashi kojima uh and yokota uh on the you know development of xenoblade uh three and uh one of the most interesting parts about this uh interview series is like uh, especially on the music like like they actually like created flutes. It's not like a new type of, but they created flutes just for this game. And like the reasoning and stuff from coming from Yasunori Mitsuno is like it was so they can like create a sound that like hasn't been heard before on it. I'm mm-hmm. like that's fucking crazy. That like they didn't just like like you know obviously get uh, like buy flutes or yeah. Like, it doesn't it doesn't sound flute. like and I, I assume these flutes were like more handmade. Yeah. Uh, like so it doesn't just sound like you know a mass produced flute or whatever. It's just like it has like a unique timbre to it. In terms of the fa- sound, like if you hear a Xenoblade Three flute, you can, it has its own sound. Like you, I can, I can hear it. <laughs> so that's yeah. really neat that they did that. That's really cool. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, it's a, a, I recommend people to check out these interviews. But obviously, the main the main news piece here for for a lot of people was like, hey, just like Xenoblade Two, Xenoblade Three's uh, brand new story scenario will be just as large as uh, Torna, the Golden Country. For, I won't uh, say anyway into news. I guess <laughs> I won't say any more than this. But there are some minor plot questions I have after beating the game, and I'm just like, it seems like something that would make sense for DLC. I have no idea, but you know, there are places they can go with a DLC that I could definitely see them going. Yeah, we're not going to so, go like straight into news. Right, no, this like you know relevant to Xenoblade Three specifically. So yeah, to be retread ground. Um, but yeah, like I, I think uh, me and you, Adam, have very similar wavelengths on like where they're gonna take the story the, uh, DLC and like what topics mm-hmm. and characters they can explore, and that's gonna be really mm-hmm. interesting to see because, like, you remember in Torn of the Golden Country, they uh, 
they added like a new like flavor to the battle system with the whole swapping back and forth. Like, I, I actually like that more than the main battle system, <laughs> too, to be honest. Yeah, so I'm interested to see like what sort of like twist they're going to do to the battle system and the gameplay with the with the new story stuff. And hopefully, no. Even though I would exhaust it anyway, hopefully, no. Like you have to do all these little mini mini side quests to complete the story. Yeah, nah. yeah. That, was, that wasn't great, but you know the. Oh, it seems like they're taking feedback. I yes. mean, it seems like evidenced by Xenoblade 3 they've taken a lot of feedback to heart, so hopefully. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Yeah, that's... The <laughs> DLC add-on is the last part of the expansion pass, which I believe is slated for late 2023, so... But yeah, it might be more than a year away, but... Yeah. Mm-hmm. But before then, they also... So, like, in the expansion pass, I believe they're going to add, like, two hero characters... Um, and they're, which sort of makes sense. Cause like I was saying, hero characters are kind of like additional characters, separate side stories and whatnot. So I could easily see them just saying like, kind of like a, kind of like when they added rare blades to Xenoblade two, oh, okay, we're adding a hero character kind of, you can find them in this location. They have their own little storyline, maybe a new colony. I don't know, but there's going to be like little mini updates like that also in separate from like the, whatever this big story DLC is going to be. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I feel that's... like such a, I feel like such a mark when I'm like I already purchased the expansion pass because it was a ton of like I know Xenoblade Chronicles two, I definitely felt thirty dollars. So I yeah, so Is I it... just kind of figured for three might as well. Mm-hmm. Yo, the the I, I I got the expansion pass the out of and there's some cheater items in there. You, like yeah, I, I saw like, they, I saw they give you another Nopon strap. Yeah, I was like, oh my god, these <laughs> these cheaters. Just kidding, it's not that bad. <laughs> Well, thanks, Adam, Josh, and James for carrying this discussion, this uh, thorough kind of analysis and uh, take on Xenoblade Chronicles 3. We hope that obviously our readers and listeners are enjoying themselves as well. We will almost certainly be talking about Xenoblade Chronicles 3 in the future, potentially in a more uh, open spoiler context. Of course, if we ever do go there, we will clearly state as such. Um, but I, I mean, I also, I also want to like keep like keep on hearing updates from you and James as you like progress through the game. Like, I don't want this to be the last time I hear about Xenoblade Three from you guys. Obviously. Well, right. Uh, like, obviously, we open up the opening sections of our podcast with games we've been playing, and Xenoblade Three is going to be a game that we will have been playing. Uh, on on that note, though, I will just throw in here in a little tiny sixty second session that I did finish, of course, before Xenoblade Three released uh, Live Alive, and Thank I just you. wanted to. I just wanted to state that I, even though it's not a genre, and it might be feel weird to like bucket games like this, but I do think that Live Alive is my favorite HD 2D game so far. Me too. Which it's HD 2D is not a genre, and it's not even an engine. So to bucket the games like that is a bit strange potentially. But I don't know. I just gelled with it a lot, and I think if I played it back in the early '90s, it would have blown my mind. Just all right. Just real know. quick, who's your favorite character? Uh. <laughs> I'm trying. I, I like Obaro. Uh, Obaro. Okay. Uh, not, but mainly just because he was overpowered in battle. Like, like his characterization is kind of bland. But I just, I, he just, I don't know. He's, he, I had him in my final party, uh, yeah, and he just he wrecked everything. As for as, as for like actual character, um, I don't know. Probably Akira. I don't know. He's just a little bit more animated than a lot of the other characters. Has a lot, has a lot of personality. Um, is really like genuine and heartfelt, and like values interacting with the people around him. Even too bad he's a little bit underpowered in game, but I don't know. I like Akira a lot. I think Lei's probably my favorite character. Lei's good too. Because yeah, she, star- she starts out like a bit like 
petulant and a little bit narcissistic, but kind of softens up a bit and feels like really like takes up her mantle really, uh, really well. She also gets some fucking OP abilities. Later. Yep. <laughs> Great. But yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the just the I enjoyed the little thing they added at the end of uh, the live alive remake. Let's say that caught me by surprise. I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> interesting. I will it, say it so, a lot, though. It changed a lot. Mm-hmm. I would say just adding this little segment there just changed a lot. So I, 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 I like it, though. I like it, though, for sure. Sorry. Trying to speak, it's trying to speak as generically as possible. At the end of Live Alive, you, ha- you, all the characters are incorporated, and you have a say in which ones you want to use. But there are certain parts where you kind of want to make sure that you know how to play each character and have potentially geared them or level them up a bit. And I didn't do that, so I stumbled a little bit at the end just because there was a character I didn't really gel with that I had to use in a certain uh, in a certain context. So I was like, oh darn. But I, I got through it uh, using some of uh, the, the end of the game showers you with a lot of items. So like no, it's kind of weird. Normally in JRPGs, I don't like uh, a lot of times if I have like healing or buffing items or attacking items, I don't like use them that often. But in Live Alive, I was at the very end. So it was kind of a, a different sort of feeling. Uh, I'm grass that's uh, so fast. You're like, oh, I really need it right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, basically you're like, oh, thank God I have an extra huge haunch of meat to heal up my character <laughs> and buff them all up. <laughs> things like that i know i like live alive a lot uh it's kind of weird because i look back uh do you guys remember uh, i hope i'm not misremembering that uh triangle strategy was our most anticipated game for this year i remember uh-huh. that yeah i still and like it a lot i i do like it i i like that game but like live alive i enjoyed way way more and i know those games aren't really similar at all other than their art style but live alive really surprised me i, I enjoyed it a lot to be fair though to be fair though both Xenoblade 3 and Live Alive were not announced until like what? February or whatever. Yeah, like four or five months ago. That's so crazy. Like, yeah. It makes sense. Like, I feel like it, it wouldn't even be a question. If Xenoblade 3 had been announced last year, it would have been like probably top for most, yeah. yeah, most anticipated. Yeah. And Live HD Live likely would have like, been, uh, would have been up there too. Go ahead, Josh. I, I, this is like a quick 15 second thing. Jacob uh, HD2D, the Octopath Champions of the Continent mobile game came out this week. I'm mm-hmm. totally going through it. I'll talk about it in another podcast. What's that? Who's the best character? Uh, I, I don't know yet, I, actually. I, I'm very early on. Um, I know from friends of mine that have played the Japanese version, they swear it's actually good. So I, I am actually interested in trying it out eventually. I do like the battle system. Like it it having like a dual character, like uh, up to eight characters in battle now, so just like your initial four, like really does a lot for the flow of the battle system. But I'll talk about it more like in uh probably next week as I get further into the game. Um before we uh, hop off of this segment though, I do want to quickly briefly talk about another JRPG that came out. Another one did come out besides Xenoblade 3. This week, I, I know it's been. It feels like it's been overshadowed, but you know it has to survive somehow. We're talking about Digimon Survive. It came out for PS4, Switch, and PC this week, and uh, Xbox. And Xbox. They did it get an Xbox release, really? Yep. Even okay. if it's oh. cool. That's cool. Okay, so I didn't my, know. My question was. for this game was: Is it so bad that's why they didn't give the code out, or they just forgot about it? Oh, okay. No, well, uh, no. I have. Okay, I have. I have a story for about this game and it changed out. Okay, I, I was getting. I was getting the PC release for this game on Steam. The Steam page didn't come out till literally like until like it was live. So I had to go. I purchased it. I played uh, a little bit. Like you know, there's a tutorial fight at the beginning, and then there's like a prologue anime cutscene. It's gonna be like two minutes to two and a half to three minutes. 
like kind of introducing like the premise and everything and like these characters. Um, at the when you're when the game is trying to get out of that anime cutscene, it just crashed for a lot of people on PC. Just like it, it was one of those things that like there was no easy like solution at the time, and like I even had like a friend like give me their save that was able to get past it so I can get past it, and then only for like an hour later there was like an opening movie that like where it crashed again. I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. Um, and I, I tried a lot of things. I tried, you know, um, I tried, I was like, maybe it runs on Steam Deck and I, I can get past it on Steam Deck and then make a save there uh, because of cloud saving. And then I don't know what happened uh, with, with this game, but when I tried to like load up that save with the opening cutscene, it, it displayed like that thing, like when capture cards don't like have a, a signal coming in, it just has like that like TV sort of like mm-hmm. rainbow uh, broadcast uh, s- screen. So it had that, but I th- but it still had like the HUD, so I could still skip it. I st- still said skip, you can skip the seat if you want to, but it still crashed. I'm like, okay, it's still it's not working on Steam Deck. Uh, my it's end, funny but... though. It's funny though, because like I also picked it up and like started it um, to see how it worked on my end on Steam Deck. And the cutscene like ran perfectly fine for me. It's just like, an issue a bunch of people seem to run into where it would finish, but it would like freeze right as the cutscene ended. Yeah. And then, yeah. so like the p- people figured out the community, like Bandai Namco still has not patched this yet, as far as I know, um, where they had to like uninstall like video codecs where they have to install like K Lite or if they have like a CCCP or if they have like uh, uh, LAV filters. And I was like, that might work out for like those people but i actually use those codecs for hobbies so i'm like i'm not gonna do that so yeah. I, so what i did was i just rebought the game on playstation and, and got a refund on the pc version because like that's I, like to me that's like unacceptable if bandai Namco expects people to just like do that workaround uh yeah. instead of just patching it themselves that's like that it actually like quite pisses me off yeah and i kind of that kind of surprises me because like uh i've, I've heard of stories about this the PC version crashing, but um, like the reviews on Steam are relatively positive. It used and to be I, very negative, be, mostly yeah, negative. Yeah, it used to uh, be mostly negative. Oh my god, I actually didn't realize this. There's over f- five thousand people playing Digimon Survive on Steam. Congratulations on them. That's good. I, I guess yeah. Digimon did in fact survive. But the, yeah, but like a very early on, like in the first like five to six hours of this game launching, it was very mostly negative. And then until like until either like Steam's like automation kicked in where they, they thought it was being review bombed, so they wiped away negative reviews, and or and, like more people like did the workaround. But you know, in my eyes, this should this game still should be mostly negative. Like if we're actually like being real here and like having like a functional game like this game should be functional on pc without having uh people themselves like like give up like part of the fu- uh, their functionality on their end you know yeah. that's the logical thing to do but we'll see if bandai namco fixes it up god knows when but i was like okay i'll just play this fucking game on my, on my playstation but well, i'm very uh, much looking forward to uh getting around to it once i'm done with Xenoblade. uh I was lucky enough that my desktop doesn't have the issue and yeah. apparently there's only two movies in the game and you're basically done with them within the first like two hours. So once that happens, I'll just switch to Steam Deck and it'll be like smooth sailing from there. Nice. Yeah. So uh, I was going to yeah. say there was more peak players for Kuro no Kiseki than the Trails of Cold Steel 2 on Steam. 
Okay. That's absolutely um, wild. I, I actually kind of want to talk about that later, but yeah. Um, so yeah, but like Digimon survive. Um, so like, I'm about like me four to five hours in like a, uh, chapter three. It's an interesting game because, you know, they, they marketed it as like mostly adventure with like some strategy RPG elements. And the, the game opens up like, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're a bunch of like, uh, middle school students, like at a, at a camp, like a summer camp. And then, um, you're kind of like in this like region where, like they have like this uh, belief in the the kimonogami, which are the Digimon, but they don't call them Digimon. They call them the kimonogami. So um, early on, like there's like this landslide like uh, that happens nearby, and like there are some people that they're trying to find because they went off on their own. Like there's this guy who's looking for his sister, and then there are there are these uh, main characters looking for like their friends because they wandered off somewhere. Um, uh, you know, one thing leads to another, and then like. They like fall through like uh, the ground and like they kind of end up like in a, almost like a parallel version of their world where like they're like in like a similar looking forest, and but like the but like their school uh, that they were staying at like um, it looks very run down like there's like moss everywhere, broken windows, and like it's like where the hell are we? Where's everyone? And like they're just kind of like in a you know, in the digital world, but they don't call it the digital world. It's not really. It's just like a place where there's like more of these Digimon roaming around, roaming around. So, um, it's Isn't a very one of the things that they said at that like one Digimon panel where they first really detailed this was that it isn't necessarily the digital world. I, I like I, I'm just I, like I, I'm just saying like it, it could be the digital world. Who knows? There's like they're, they're like in a world yeah. where like there are Digimon running around. I don't know if it's called the digital world or but it's like, it's like they're still part of the mystery. The mystery is like trying to get the fuck out of this yeah. place. You know, um, and so there, there's an interesting sequence early on because you're you're alone, and then you meet with Koromon, and then Koromon de, uh, defends you from this you know hostile Digimon, and then they they uh, digivolve into Agumon, um, and then so you're kind of like uh, alone for a little bit, and then you meet up with more of your friends, and the first chapter is a really interesting, um, I forget what yeah, the first chapter. Where it all culminates in like this horror detective mystery around the school because you meet up with some of your friends, you guys are trying to find shelter. So you got you guys go back to the school and find that it's all run down. And then um from here on, like as you're trying to stay the night, you notice that there are spider webs everywhere. And like depending on how the situation plays out and like what you do during the the adventure game segments, and the, the adventure game segments are basically just going into like a part of the school or a part of like the forest and like looking around um with like a cursor and like uh talking to people and observing elements and sometimes like invisible elements you can like put up your phone and um you'll find like a glitchy area and then you can investigate that for items or maybe like an an enemy's trying to ambush you um it does a it does a handy thing that i appreciate though is like you don't have to like look around necessarily to like find if like for anything to interact you can use the l1 and r1 buttons to like cycle what are the interactables uh, on the screen so there's like not a lot of guesswork of like oh where do i have to like put my cursor at so you can use the l1 and r1 buttons instead for that so uh, like in this like early part of the game um when you're trying to find the uh this one of your friends gets kidnapped right away and um they're like okay we're, we're, what in the world are we gonna do so you have to like kind of find a way to like get through some cobwebs and like find out where the hideout is of this like uh like 
mysterious Digimon like that's been kind of causing trouble. And um, there are certain points where you can like choose to like take allies with you when you're investigating around. But if you choose to like let them just like stay at a place because you think that like it's safest for them, they'll actually get get start getting kidnapped one by one. And like at the end of this like early chapter, you can actually like just you can actually have those allies with you if you like you chose to bring them with you. But if not, then like you play that battle totally alone. So it's kind of like the hardest version of that battle. And and, and like that that's really cool. Like that where it can diverge like that. And like and this is that initial battle is like when like Agumon gets his first digi, uh, evolution into a champion form, and this champion form can be uh, can be different. Like I got Greymon. Which is all well, a lot of people will uh, can will know, like if they watch the TV show, uh, and but some of my friends were like, no, I didn't get uh, Great Mod, and that's because of like the the karma like system where there are certain points, um, characters ask you what you think or what you think they should do, and there are usually three options, and one is for moral, one's for harmony, and one's for wrathful, and uh, you know you uh, over time you'll uh, you'll start to get it doesn't spell it out right away that these are like this is the moral choice this is the harmony choice this is the wrathful choice but you'll start figuring out oh hey they're usually at the same spots during this uh dialogue um choice that i'm given and also if you have your cursor hover all along them enough you'll start they'll, they'll start uh the dialogue choice will start exuding like a certain color in the background and like and then you'll start matching out like oh this is the color of moral this is the color of Harmony is the color of wrathful as well. So I, th- I thought it was going to be more um, murkier than that. It looked murky at first. And then, like, I started noticing that. I'm like, oh, never mind. It's very, um, it just doesn't spell it out for you right away. But it'll, once you catch on, it's like, okay, these are usually, these choices are usually at the same spot. And, like, depending on, like, uh, which way, like, your character is, like, moving towards, whether it's, like, moral, harmony, or wrathful, it'll like change up like your some Digimon evolutions. So since like my character was like more of on like the moral path, um, they uh, Digivolved into Greymon, into Greymon, and then if I was like more wrathful, they would like go another turn into another creature. And um, so that's like uh, I'm having a lot of nostalgia right now with the initial anime. With it's not the Greymon uh, episode, but it's the Skull Greymon episode yeah. that wrecked me as a kid. I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, I still get hyped thinking about War Greymon and Metal. Was it was a Metal Garurumon? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah. The, 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 another interesting aspect of Digimon Survive that I just want to mention is like it's you're not just confined to like your main Digimon. There's actually like like uh, free battles that you can do as like you're exploring like around like so at some points you're you can go off and like continue the main story if you go to the certain place and then talk to a specific character if you want to advance the story it'll like give you like a clear icons that'll say hey this is where you go to advance the main story but there are these battles that you can repeat called free battles where you can use to like level up and like you can also like use them to recruit like free digimon so like at the at the start of battle you can you can talk to the digimon and like it's kind of the negotiation system is almost a little bit like persona 2 where they ask you three questions and you have a choice of four answers. And like, there's like these pips at the top where there's like six pips and depending on your answer, you can, uh, a great answer will fill up two pips. A good answer will fill up one pip. There, there are certain answers that can take away 
pips as well. And as soon as the like, as long as you can like get over or fill up three pips, that you'll you'll be presented with a choice whether you want them to give you an item or be my friend. And like the and the recruitment uh, has a percentage chance as well. It's RNG. Like it'll like like success rate will be like fifty percent or twenty six percent as well. If it, if you fail that, they'll just like run away. Um, so it kind of has like that uh, almost uh, Megami Tensei DNA in it. Like a lot of people will think about like Double Survivor as an example with this game because it's a strategy RPG. And like um, and when you get a free Digimon, they're not confined by like um, the 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 karma system in their digivolutions like a, a, a good chunk of their stuff like branching paths and like what they want to evolve in but all you need is like like certain mats that drop in battles to like uh to digivolve them and unlike the main digimon like agumon for example like when uh, agumon turns into greymon they're not always going to be greymon they're they, they'll all like they'll revert back to um agumon but let's say like i have a, a free digimon and it's like um I, I don't know, uh, I, Gazimon or something like a rookie form, and like I evolved them into uh, Gardromon. I forgot if they evolved into that or not. But if you evolved into Gardromon, they'll always stick as Gardromon. You can't revert them back after that. So that's the main difference between free Digimon and the main story Digimon uh, in that aspect. Um, the, the the story is interesting, but right now it's a lot of it is like trying to find like the main group. That, like was separated from you when you first entered this like there, and there's a lot of like internal conflicts as well of like do you think we should like hide in the school and like wait it wait it out or like go and explore around but like no that could be potentially dangerous so like there's there's almost like uh almost like a lord of the flies sort of dynamic going on with the party as well where i'm at uh, as you like you know meet up people and like they have different like views on like what do you well how they should like uh proceed forward so it's an interesting game so far i don't think it's bad um it, but it is very like it's it's a hard game to like play after xenoblade 3 because like xenoblade 3 presents like you know this is like what like this is like a really good dot character dy- dynamic and like the party dynamic the might survive is very you know by the books so far i would say i guess i will ask because remember guys we've covered this game the the most the recent two digimon games were the Cyber Sleuth games, uh, which seemed like they're very, very different from Survive, which is like largely visual novel with strategy elements. So I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna kind of ask like bluntly, yeah. like within your time with the game so far, like how many hours are you in, and how much have you engaged with like the tactical gameplay versus the visual novel aspect? I've put about maybe four and a half to five hours so far. I've done a decent chunk of um battles in it but it's mainly because of the repeatable free battles so like there was a thing early on um where there was like this uh certain enemy digimon that's like a like almost a repeatable encounter but uh where every time like you fended it off from your party it would drop a map that would like uh turn your uh free digimon from rookie to champion so i kind of farmed that encounter multiple times to like get them up to their champion forms and then i went back to free battles to like recruit more of them so like you can have a good chunk of the game be uh, battles but like if you're just playing it without like engaging with that stuff without engaging with the free battles like there's like a major like there's usually a major encounter at the end of chapters there's not a lot of like 
like story mandated battles so far um uh if you're not engaging with like the optional battles that you can do so like it, it is very much like hey if you're like going on the main path only then you will definitely be engaging more with the visual novel-esque adventure elements of it more so than the battles and the battles themselves are like not necessarily bad either like uh there, there's like an there's like interesting amount of options you can do in battle just the beyond just talking to enemies you can actually like for like the main story digimon you can choose when they digivolve in battle and you can you can revert them back because if you're maintaining the champion form will reduce sp from them so you don't want them going around and maintaining that form but they don't need it like uh you, you would only like go back into it if like if you're facing off like the with an enemy and like you need like that extra extra firepower and tankiness as well and and like and it's pretty funny because like there's like almost XCOM-esque um damage formulas in this game where like uh there was a major story encounter where like I was uh like uncommonly missing like 90%, 87% like hit chance stuff. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> so um there is a certain degree of that too. But it's nice to say go ahead, James. It's wild that um like from the marketing, what little there was and from what they talked about the game, it stood out to me that like one of the few things that we knew about this game in the coming like in the months leading up to it was the development team saying, Oh yeah, a major inspiration for this project was Utuaru Mono. And it's like hearing like hearing you describe the gameplay, it's like Oh yeah, this is just like Digimon Utoaru Mono. That's kind yeah, of wild. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that as someone who's goes. never played Utoaru Mono, I'm like, wait, a visual novel with strategy elements, isn't that Utoaru Mono? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like you even have like like uh, some of the characters sometimes show up in battle, and they have like the chibi style going on for them. So, well, I, I treat that as like a was an Aqua Plus staple. I mean, I got that experience playing Tears to Tearia. If anyone played that. I remember it. I, I don't remember playing it, but I remember the name of it. Well, you should hunt down for the second game on PS3. It's actually very good. Well, uh, it'll get really re-released one day, right, Chow? Mm. <laughs> Not with the Vita God. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, I'm I'm curious to see you know uh, more of the game and see like you know just because there's going to be like a, a path split uh, that they were talking about later on. And see how the story develops. Like right now, I'm just like it's it's okay. It's a, it's all right. Good game. Just despite my initial frustration with the PC version, like it's it's solid. It, it's but I have to like rewire my brain to be like okay. I can't have like I can't have the same expectations for like JRPGs moving forward that I like than what Xenoblade Three showed me. Right? <laughs> right. It's like one of those things that I have to separate and like be like okay. I have to like judge it on its own terms. Well, I'm sure that once we have more people that are able to put time into Digimon Survive, that we will revisit it. Uh, maybe uh, kind of between Xenoblade Three and Soul Hackers. Uh, well, I'd like to get more people to be able to talk about Digimon Survive, and I know that other people here have expressed interest in it. It's just you know an unfortunate timing. Lots of games at once. Yeah. So I, I yeah. will likely will likely have some podcast in the next month or so where we have a, a larger window to talk about Digimon Survive from multiple perspectives. And then, of course, obviously, it'll make an appearance at our end of the year cast where we talk about how we felt about it as a whole in relation to all the other games releasing this year. So uh, thank you, Josh, for kind of giving us uh, for fi finding some time in your schedule to at least uh, get into Digimon Survive a bit to kind of give us the uh, the initial lowdown of your initial thoughts of the game. And we will follow up and see how we all think about it once we get around to uh, fitting into our schedules. I, I guess my, my one final thing is like, 
don't rush Xenoblade Three just to get to like another <laughs> like game, like because Adam and I have seen Xenoblade Three. Yeah, yeah, and also Adam, I've been noticing that like a lot of like questions of like some like where things are in the game is because it's like oh they didn't do the side quest they like rushed the game to like you know for example the 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 final hero character in the main game has a pretty significant side quest that kind of changes the world a little bit in a new location and someone is looking for something it's like well if you skipped all that that's a lot of content you're missing so, yeah, consider how yeah. massive they are. It's like I can't believe people could like rush through all that and and so, would that burn you out? You know, going for that fast? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, some people just want to get through the main thing. Like, man, you're missing so much as you know. Like, if you just go through the main game. I do like how even uh, when we're talking about Digimon Survive, we still go back to talking about Xenoblade. Well, I, we could talk about Live Alive. I, I like to talk about spoilers, but I want everyone to give another couple more weeks before that happens. Well, yeah, I mean, Live Alive obviously is barely over a week old, so we might have an additional window. I know we talked about it briefly in the gap here between Xenoblade 3 and Digimon Survive, but yeah, another game that it seems like we're pretty positive on that we might have another opportunity to talk about later uh, once other people finish and do a spoiler, a more spoiler-focused episode on that as well. We'll have to see how our how our schedules play out. Well, uh, that kind of covers it for the games we've been playing section. Obviously, a very lengthy discussion on Xenoblade Chronicles 3 and all the other games that have released in the last week or recently. Um, For the news front and the article front, it's a little bit more limited, so we'll be able to make up some time here at the back end of the podcast. Uh, Before we go too into the news headlines of the week, uh, I do want to follow up on one thing from the podcast last week, where we did have James talk about his impressions of Little Noah, Scion of Paradise. Uh, you can listen to that episode of the podcast if you want to hear James's full impressions of that game. Uh, but he also did write up his thoughts into a review up on the site as well, up on RPGSite.net. So go ahead and give that re- give that a read for the Little Noah Sign of Paradise review. All right, going into the news front, there's not a lot of headlines here, but the headlines that are here are pretty impactful. Uh, so there's some interesting things going on. And now I'm going to talk about a game that is not officially announced, but I think this is the third or fourth time we've talked about it on this podcast. And that is, of course, Tactics Ogre Reborn. A Tactics Ogre remaster remake of some sort was first teased and hinted at and leaked last year with the big NVIDIA GeForce release. Uh, leak, not release, leak. Uh, And then it showed up in a trademark. It showed up on the PlayStation Store page that existed and then got taken down. But of course, everything on the internet is permanent. And now it is also shown up on a PlayStation game price tracking website, PS Deals, where we got more screenshots of the game, more details about what it is, about the remaster. And basically, the game is all but announced and we kind of know what to expect. We even have a potential release date of November 11th for Tactics Ogre Reborn, according to this psdeals.net info. Uh, so th- with this, based on the screenshots that we've seen and some of the store listings from this, this is based on the 2010 PSP version, Let Us Clean Together version of the game. It uh, features some redone artwork. It features uh, some tweaked mechanics, specifically around how units and classes are leveled up. I'm going to hand this off to someone that I know feels very strongly about this game. Not, Not necessarily the only person here that does. But Adam, based on what we've seen from all of the leaked, non unofficial information for Tactics Ogre Reborn, how are you feeling about it? So the first thing I want to bring up is the class leveling. I have mixed thoughts on this, so I need to explain this. 
In Tactics Ogre, the PSP version anyway, which is the one I played, I never played the PlayStation or the original versions, um, rather than leveling up your characters, like is more typical in a, any RPG, especially a strategy RPG, you level up your classes. So like you have like a soldier class, you level up the class and then any character who used that class will be the same level. So when you got a new class, you'd have to train up that class. Now, one of the one of my only criticisms of Tactics Ogre, which is an excellent game, is that when you got a new class in the game, they would start at level one or like three, like really low. And so you'd kind of have to literally go out of your way to like catch them up. It's honestly pretty bad. Uh, for this new version, they specifically list out in the in like the store page description that it no longer uses a class-based leveling system, but now it uses a unit-based leveling system. To some people, that was like, hallelujah, this is immediately fixed. No, and, it's not fixed. It's using the Super Nintendo PlayStation version. Yeah, that's, a, that's a more grindier than ever, trust me. I don't, so I, I'm a mixed thoughts of it. Like, okay, I guess you sort of avoid the class issue, but you're maybe introducing another issue because there are the problem being is that there are a lot of characters in this game. So if you want to use like a, a a wide swath of characters, now you have to level them all up individually rather than just like a class you can kind of attach to them. It's like uh, I'm I'm a little bit concerned of how this might work. Uh, um, personally, personally, if I were to make a tweak from the PSP version to to to, to basically fix that issue that I mentioned, I would just have when you unlock a new class have them basically start at some average level like let's just say your classes are like in the range of 20 to 25 and it like they join at like level 22 like oh okay you know they're usable might need to catch up a little bit with your highest level classes but they're not starting at level one so i'm a little bit concerned about going back to a unit-based system primarily just because there are so many units so now you have to train them all up rather than just like a class or a set of classes i'm a little bit concerned yeah, I've, um, I, wonder, I wonder if they're like tweaking like the formulas on like how, how fast you get experience in the game and what other like sort of math is yeah. behind the scenes. So I think yeah, it's hard to say. Know, it's, yeah, it's one of the things that remains the, to be seen because like you've already seen a little bit of like the math being tweaked in this game in one of the screenshots. Of the yeah. So. Um, and then of course, it seems like I guess I don't know if we mentioned this. Uh, it's it seems to be a pretty. Um, it's based off the PSP version. It's got the same like structure. It's got the same mechanics there in terms of the world tarot and like the battle tarot, or I think I forget what they call it, the chariot, um, where you can go through the game. There are branching paths, and then you can basically jump around certain points along the timeline to make different choices, to do different side quests, to um, recruit new characters. Honestly, this is one of my favorite elements of this game is that you don't have to fret too much about like which choice is the correct choice because the truth is none of them are correct. They just lead down different paths. Um, there is no true ending. It's only different endings, really. And then you can go back to any point and follow a new path. And it's really, really cool. And then any character that you like recruit, like for example, one of the popular characters is Ravnus. Uh, they only join on the law path, but if, once you sort of recruit them from that path, and you jump around, then you can use them on another path, which does mean sometimes you can have Ravnus fighting Ravnus or whatever, but it's cool as a game. Um, 
Otherwise, so it seems to be based on the PSP version. It's got the same dialogue, the same font, or at least the, the text font. Some of the UI fonts are a little different, which Alex is upset about. But um, oh, we saw the good old uh, capitalized Comic Sans for character yeah. interactions. Hello. Yep. They should be shouting, guys. Yeah. Oh, they added, they're adding voice acting. I sort of hope I can turn the voices off, just in case I don't like the voice acting. Because I already have, like, voices in my head of how these characters sound. I don't want I don't want that to be shattered, right? Um, I think anyway. we would reuse the Japanese voices for yeah. the entire version. Don't get yeah. the ZW3 cast on it. But, <laughs> I really yeah, don't like of... the UI font. It's that, like, I'm not a font person. There's there are certain people that you can show them a font and they can just say exactly what it is. I'm not that. But it's like a, the mobile game Square Enix, like, Arial Narrow type font. Yeah. Of some yeah. sort, where the, the original Alex game, the way Alex put it, it's like this looks like a futuristic font that should be in Mass Effect, yet it's in this, uh, like this medieval era, like fantasy game. So, it makes a huge difference of making a game look nice or bad, you know. I think it's one of the biggest hurdles when back in the fan translation days is like trying to get the font to look right, you know. So, yeah. Um, I, I, it's it's weird, right? Because like the like the like the font choices you're talking about, like the font choice like for the Arial Narrow is like for like the the, the tool tips, but like for the actual like numbers is that like futuristic font that yeah, Ox is talking about, like because the levels and like the HP values, like that's that's what in my in my mind's eye is like yeah, it feels like a futuristic number you'd see like in a Star Ocean game or something. The, well, the, the, the kind of the uh, I don't know if this is like the monkey's paw or whatever. It's a uh... The, font, the sprites in these games do look like they have a slight smeary effect on them. I've yeah. seen worse. It, it's just it, like, man, it's kind of it's it's kind of a weird thing, right? Because like it's 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 like they took the original like sprites and like they like they like upscaled and like have that smear effect, but then they went back and like pixelized that. So yeah. it has like it kind of has like that weird like in between. <laughs> like it's like we kind of did both <laughs> in a weird way. It's Honestly, like that. Honestly, I think I think the thing with the uh, new sprites, I think they would actually be fine if it wasn't for the black border around them, because everything outside of the border isn't actually blurry. It's perfectly fine. Yeah, I think I think the environment design is okay. I do think I do think the sprites do look better on the environment versus like in the menu, if that makes sense. Because mm -hmm. you sort of are contrasting them to like the environment art around them, I still wish there's just an option just to have them be very pixelated. I mean, that's sort of how like the HD two D games look, right? Is that even yeah. though they are HD two D, they're still very pixelated. Um, so I know this is an HD two D, and I'm not saying it should. I'm just I'm just saying this allow us to like have the pixelated sprites. Uh, some I know like for example the Disgaea games, like a Disgaea on PC. There's a smoothing option that you can turn it on and off because obviously the original Disgaea games were pixel art um, sprites. And I wish games like Grandia had that option. I'm sure it's been modded into the PC version by now. But um, speaking of PC version, since these leaks are from like a PlayStation kind of backend listing, uh, it says these games are coming to PlayStation 4 and 5. We don't know other platforms. Knowing Square Enix is weird. This is part of the uh, the NVIDIA leak, so I'm pretty sure yeah. it's also coming to PC. Yeah, and probably Switch, because everything a lot of things come to Switch, but sometimes Square Enix is sort of weird with their platform choices, so it's hard to say. But um, as Brian said, oh, introducing this bit, oddly enough, while this game has leaked like three or four different times, Square Enix hasn't confirmed anything. So 
Um, obviously, it all looks very real and legit. Like that store page just didn't come out of nowhere, and these screenshots didn't come out of nowhere. But still, Square Enix doesn't announce anything. No, you understand. You understand, Adam. Someone fucking redrew re oh, okay. the, the main visual of Tactics Hook, and they somehow got a listing on on PlayStation, PlayStation Network with yeah. logo and everything. But it's all fake. It's 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 a, it's a very elaborate deep fake. <laughs> well, maybe they save it for a big Nintendo Direct, you know. But considering all this information's all leaked, are people going to be like as hyped for it? You know, it's like I, oh, I didn't, I'm just we're just, just wondering when which event they're going to like unveil this information at, unless they decide to like. Just, is there a Gamescom thing? I don't. Tactics Ogre is not the sort of game I'd expect to be announced at a Gamescom. But I'm just like, if this is coming out this fall, and it's going to be announced at some event, Tokyo Game Show. Tokyo it might be a case thing. of where they're avoiding talking about it because Square already has a ton of other like small releases yeah. around September, October. So actually, what they did was they intentionally leaked this so they could get some feedback from like us, and then they're gonna. There's some people that are gonna legitimately believe it. that. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh, people don't like the uh, the UI font. We better adjust that before we announce it for reals. And then, oh, the class leveling, maybe we should tweak that too. And the sprites. Yeah. Yeah, so this is all just an intentionally. All right, I believe it. I mean, they could just ask the one vision creator. He's the guy that's been modding the game for the last, I don't know, like five years to like perfection. You should just ask that guy for advice for how to fine tune the game. <laughs> yeah, the original creator's like, hey, dude, hey, dude, how do you how do you fix our game right now? <laughs> Yeah, we will. Uh, we will wait to see some sort of formal announcement of Tactics Ogre Reborn. See if we get a trailer that goes alongside. Even though it feels like we've seen and know everything about the game in terms of what it looks like visually, the fact that it's a remaster based off the PSP version, we know what it's adding compared to the PSP version. So I don't know, like, what a trailer or an official announcement could show us, but we'll look forward to it, especially if we have a tentative release date potentially of November 11th. So uh, we'll uh, stay tuned and we'll see. Uh, in a completely other realm of news, this is another headline from this week that is pretty major. And it's about the upcoming Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic remake that was being developed by Asper Media for PlayStation 5 and PC. According to a report from Bloomberg, the status of this remake is that it has been indefinitely delayed and that it has not playtested well internally and that basically that development is kind of at a standstill for this remake. Now, I, I know Adam definitely delayed isn't the best way of putting it because he's they specifically said that it's indefinitely paused development. It's not being developed at the moment. Yeah. Oh, okay. At all. Yeah. No, yeah, I know. That's actually getting a little bit into semantics where indefinitely de delayed could just mean we're developing it, but we just haven't we haven't picked a new date yet where this is like we are not developing it right now um okay so anyways i don't mean to sound cynical but when this game this game was sort of rumored before it was officially announced i think it was jason schreier also who rumored it who leaked it or you know reported on it or whatever and it was rumored that aspire was i think that's how you pronounce the studio's name right aspire uh they were developing it and i was like that can't be right. They, they, Aspire, they mostly do ports. Like, they did the port of, like, Jedi Outcast, Jedi Academy, um, that that uh, Clone Wars Rebels or whatever game. Um, so it's... When they announced that Aspire was working on it, I'm, I was like, this is... 
I guess, are they going to be able to develop a full-on remake rather than a port? And then turns out maybe not. <laughs> so that's uh, and all- it's like excavation because uh, like this is you know highly beloved and also very 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 expensive to remake for for like if they're partnering with you know Sony on it as well. Well, a lot of the discussion we've had on the potential of a Nice Little Public remake we had back when we had the initial teaser during the uh, PlayStation Showcase in 2021, where the original game is very much like a a, a pseudo turn-based game, dice rolls, like tabletop adapted for uh, a computer game back in 2003 or whenever the game released. And like, and, yeah, and now uh, a modern Star Wars game is almost certainly going to be an action game, right? But then you have people who have like fond memories and nostalgia for this game who might not be as, uh, you know, appreciative of that. But for newer players, it might be more palatable to to onboard on that. But it, it kind of seems like a moot point, though, because we don't know like what the status of this is going forward, if it's going to be picked up by another developer or even like just outright canceled. Uh, I think that's sort, of, I have a sort of gossipy comment on this. Okay. I saw when we posted about this or when James reported it, I saw a lot of comments that were like, this remake was going to be bad anyways because they were going to change things. And I'm just thinking it's a remake. It was not going to be like shot for shot, the original game. I expected if this was a real thing that was going to be released, you know, characters might look a little different. The dialogue would be different. It would follow broadly the same beats, but I wasn't expecting it to be like a shot for shot text for text line for line remake or, or like redo of the original because that game like, already exists yeah whenever so, i think about it, like the, you can play the original there's nothing stopping you from playing the original it's so okay like, I so, have a question. I, i'm just i just don't i just don't agree that like it was going to be bad because they're going to change things you know it's, it's obviously going to be a new interpretation of it that's what a remake is anyways that's, that's all i had if you're going to do a one for one remake everything's the same like just have it better graphics and it's a different system would you treat that as a port well, it's sort of like Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. You know, it's obviously all like the character art assets are are brand new, but it's I would hesitate to call it a remake because like everything else about the game is identical. Like you can follow a, a guide for the original game and get you through the re- get you through the Definitive Edition. Well, and now we're arguing semantics at this point a bit, but basically my point is just I don't I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing that they're going to change it up a little bit because that's what remakes do yeah. any remake not even just like a book remake but movie remakes, movie remakes have you? Like the live action remakes of fucking disney movies <laughs> all the time Ugh. But, wow yeah. old I, public I just, remake compared to live action beauty and the beast <laughs> i didn't say it i didn't say it but the, the only the only image uh uh that plays in my mind when i read the story is like you remember Fucking the the Anakin and uh, Obi Wan Kenobi showdown episode three, and then like it's just like Obi Wan like spinning so uh, this uh, so the lightsaber in circles, not even hitting Anakin. That's the that's a gif, like in my mind. That's what you now associate mental public remake with. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, with this this news, yes. <laughs> uh, well, uh, bummer. Yeah, I don't know. Like nothing else to really say on this. Who knows when we'll hear about like. The status of this game, whether it just be quietly shelved or thank you or Adam, the- for, for carrying the game <laughs> in Snapchat. <laughs> so now we are also uh, recording the podcast or enjoying the Obi Wan Anakin GIF. 
that's 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 the level of uh, excitement that we get from talking about Star Wars games these days. I don't know. The next headline that we have in the news section is about the Metal Max series of games. And that is that Psy Games is taking over ownership of the Metal Max IP and is working on a new project within that IP, including the fact that the series creator Hiroshi Mioka has also joined Psy Games as the director. So I don't have a lot of experience with either Psy Games as a publisher or the Metal Max IP. So I know Adam has played a few of the Metal Max games, and I know that uh, I believe Josh has as well. But when you see this headline about Psy Games now taking ownership of the IP, is this something that you think is really promising? Now, that's kind of, as an outsider, that's my initial take. Oh, yeah, Psy Games has got you know their head on straight, and Metal Max needs a little like a shot in the arm. This seems like good news to me when I just read the headline. But do yeah. you feel the same? I'm not really familiar with the Japanese games. Are you, Josh? Like a little bit. Yeah, not many were. I th- was Metal Saga the first on PS2? Was that the first game? Yeah, the, in the series. Yeah, and it's not even like technically in the series, yeah. but Metal Saga is sort of like a Metal Max spinoff. I think that was like the first one that was localized, and there were several before then that weren't. So I played yeah. Metal Saga. I haven't played I any of the. I think there was like fan translations uh, for like yeah. the older ones, but the, for official releases, I think it is Metal Saga. Um, but you know, after seeing what like where Metal Max has been going with Xeno and Xeno Reborn, like I think it's a net positive. I think Side Games, I think Side Games has a vested interest in like trying to like make good Metal Max games again. Like I think Side Games is like Side Games is weird because it operates on like almost like nostalgia. Almost, um, you remember when Side Games like headed that zone of the Ender's Two uh, re- re- enhanced re- release for modern platforms. And their the reason is like, I don't know, we just like really like Zone of the Enders. <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. Um, so I think it's an interesting cans now. Like, it still has the original creator with it. And it reminds me of like when Kenichiro Takaki went to Psy Games and like he didn't bring the Senran Kagura IP with him. But um, it's like Psy Games is in this, in this weird position now where they're kind of like taking like very key like Japanese game developers and like kind of scooping them up. Um, for because I think they're they're starting to like slowly gear towards the like, like a future beyond Grand their Grand Blue mobile game. Like obviously, it's still a very very big part of their business model and the way they operate. Um, but I think they are like starting to think of like planning for the future. You know, Grand Blue is not always going to be there for them. Yeah, I, I find it really nice. It's like I always knew that like their stated thing was, oh, we want to make money in mobile games so we can make console games. And I always kind of was like, yeah, sure, whatever. But especially like recently, you you were starting to see like the proof where the pudding is. And it's like, you know what? I maybe maybe you weren't just uh, saying that. Maybe I yeah, and I still do like like they have like smaller scope things like Little Noah now coming out of nowhere. It's like and that was like that that's not not like like the old IP that was or the old game that was based on was like a Clash of Clans clone but now they they reimagined that to something completely different and something very cool and it's smaller scope it doesn't have to be like a big big project and I think that's I, I feel like that's where Metal Max should go is something start with smaller scope again you know don't, don't try to be very like big and ambitious like the way that like Ezino tried to be and like think about like you know what would make for a cool modern Metal Max game without having to like reach for like almost a double a triple a budget um yeah like for metal max um metal max xeno is not very good 
then apparently the Reborn version sort of made it worse in ways. I haven't played it because I didn't enjoy it enough the first time to play it again. But just reading other reviews and whatnot, it seems like it sounded like they were going to try to make like improve it in every way. And it sounds like it they kind of just improved it in some ways and made it worse in others. And then they canceled the uh, follow-up. So it's just kind of like not a good showing. Yeah, so. and, and like like the writing was on the wall because they canceled like a, like a, the like the sequel project of Marinette, right. you know, like Wild West or something like that. Yep. Um so it's just like And then I guess they also hired like the original creator or at least one of them who worked on like the original series back, you know, you know, in the retro era yeah. of, of yeah. games yeah. who basically wants to continue working on it for the new project. Uh so you know, that's always a good sign when one of the original creators gets kind of their hands on it again to, to, yeah, well, to you know, best of luck, you know, uh, I hope they figure out that series and whatever comes, uh, comes next from them is something very cool. Cause uh, metal max is such a, like an interesting, like sort of, it's sort of like a series that like no one really touches like the premise of, and like the way they handle gameplay mechanics, especially you'll see this a lot in metal saga. Metal um, saga is great. Yeah. And like it's like a very a very open nonlinear sandbox almost. You can finish yeah. Metal Saga in like five minutes. Yep. And I, I think that's something they should do, they should try to go for is like something that is less that is more in that spirit. Uh and something that really calls back to the original games. So, you know, uh best of luck. I think that I think this is uh, this is good news all around. Because Katakawa games wasn't really doing much with it, to be honest. And the last remaining big IP that Katakawa has is um, they Relayer. have some software. I oh, and Relayer. And apparently God Wars. Yeah, so like so this is weird, <laughs> right? Like uh like just at the beginning of July, actually, um they established um uh, a new brand called Dragami Games. And this is basically uh they took like 30 staff members from Katakawa games and like and they kind of they made their own thing and this was like from the offset of like them announcing like a, a remake of Lollipop Chainsaw and like and like the God Wars team is like part of the now Dragami games now so like God Wars and Relayer are now officially under Dragami games instead of Katakawa games and like stuff like Lover and Lover Kiss those games as well are under that so it's kind of like a lot of like weird management shifts and brand uh brand shifting Interesting to see if uh, From Software has kind of been in like a speculation mode for a while, whether they'd be picked up by someone. Don't know if this kind of adds a little... Kind of weird that they're they're wholly owned by Katakawa, but they publish like Bonnie Namco or Activision yeah, like, or whoever like, will like publish for them. So. Mm-hmm. This next piece of news uh, is kind of a follow-up from a couple of other podcasts that we've had, and that is about the formally announced Fuga Melodies of Steel 2. Uh, if you listen to a previous episode of the podcast, this was unveiled in a Famitsu interview, and then it was fully, or I guess like officially titled, I suppose, uh, last week or a little over a week ago. Uh, but then they said that on July 28th, they were going to reveal fully the information about the sequel to Fuga Melodies of Steel. And now we have that. So Fuga Melodies of Steel 2 will release in 2023 for uh, all consoles and PC, PlayStation 4, 5, Xbox Series 1, Switch, and Steam, and Epic Store. Uh, it takes place two years after the events of the first game. No, it starts a year. Oh, a year. Sorry. Fuga Melodies of Steel 2 starts one year after the events of the first game. Thank you, Josh. 
And it seems to follow up upon the true ending of the first game, where <laughs> this is we're going to go back into the Soul Cannon discussion that we had on the previous episode. It seems like, based on the key art and all the other information about the game that we've had, uh, that all the children are present in the sequel. It'd be kind of, so, a, it'd be kind of a, a dick move if it was like, actually, sorry, Boron died canonically. <laughs> uh, we can always do the Shadow Hearts route, start the sequel. For oh, yeah. Shadow Hearts is interesting. The second game starts on the bad end of the first game and then goes into the first game again. It's very timey wimey stuff. So, but yeah, we got a uh, we got a new trailer for this. We know it's to expect it next year. We got some new key art, uh, and we got a little bit of a premise uh, about about the game, just in terms of the fact that it takes place a year after, and that the again the children are you know thrown into the the chaos of battle and things like that. Uh, but I don't know. It's James. You're the one that felt most strongly about the release of Fuga Melodies of Steel. I don't know if any of the new information here has you any more or less excited or just basically circling it on your calendar for next year. Well, um, I very much enjoyed Fuga, uh, obviously. Um, but my main complaint was that, um, the story just didn't hit me as much as I was kind of expecting it to because, and I'm sure uh, Josh knows what I, what I mean when I say this. Fuga's like the first like Cyber Connect 2 game I played where the reason to play it would be the gameplay because pretty much every other thing that they've put out, which has been noteworthy, has been due to pretty much everything but the gameplay, like the story, the world building, the art, the sound, all that. And while like the soundtrack for Fuga is great and the uh, world building is interesting and whatnot, the story definitely felt like it was a little bit weaker than what I had grown used to, especially with the Little Tail Brock series. So what we're seeing of Fuga 2, where it seems like very clearly more of a focus on a story, a much more serious, well, it was already serious, but you know what I mean, more serious town. Um, I'm excited to see what uh, what they can uh, drum up, uh, especially since they are obviously like uh, adding stuff to the gameplay, like little tweaks here and there and additions. And it's like... I'm interested to see what we'll end up getting because I don't think CyberConnect 2 has been in a situation like this where I guess you can argue with the uh, dot hack games that were always kind of building upon the next, but they were released so close to each other and they were constantly in the pipeline. While Fuga is like a smaller title and like Fuga 2, like obviously he's like reusing assets like like always, but it feels like there's a chance for this one to be truly, truly special if they take everything that was great about the first one and really build upon. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think it's running into this issue right now, like just from the initial thing where it feels like it's too. It kind of feels too samey right now with the, the, the for anything everything they released. Like we do have a new design for the Tyrannus that looks kind of like more demonic. I'd say uh, it's not an it's not a new design for Tyrannus. It's the other yeah, tank. Yeah, it's the other tank. Yeah, um, and. And there is stuff like uh, you're. I don't know how it works, but there's like these. Uh, there's like a, there's like an airship like they, they can use. Yeah, too. it seems like you're like working with an army this time, which is a bit of an interesting change. And yeah. like one of the screenshots, there like you look at the um, timeline for moving through a stage, and there's a really interesting thing where it looks like you're jumping into the timeline from like halfway or something. Yeah. So it's like, there's obviously stuff there. They're just not talking about it too much. Yeah. Cause I think they've realized that they, that it makes sense to kind of like talk about that closer to launch since that's not out until next yeah. year. I'm interested, like, I'm interested to see where, where it goes uh, from there. They also have like an event system with characters. So 
I I wonder how that will play out. So like they're they're still they're pretty light on details on new elements for now. Um, but I do I do think that like the, this game has a I think it has a hard road <laughs> uh, to be honest, hard road in front of it because like how do you sell a sequel to a, a title that didn't really sell well and uh, to to people? Um, and I, I just I I wish them the best. I, I'm really curious to play this and hopefully enjoy it. But I they they need to figure it out because to, to like because sequels traditionally sell worse than their predecessor. They, they especially when it's clearly a direct sequel, like yeah. one year after. Yeah. I think the thing I said uh, when this first got announced was that I think that it makes a bit more sense when you think about it as an idea that any marketing for Fuga 2 is also marketing for Fuga 1. So if people get interested in Fuga 2, that's more sales for Fuga 1. And obviously, Fuga 2 just like inherently is going to be a cheaper project than Fuga 1 because you already have the engine, you already have the core framework. And even if you're adding things onto it, that's iterative instead of like ground up like innovations. For some reason, the game that I think about it's not quite the same, but based on the description, it almost sounds like a banner saga set set up to me where the banner saga trilogy is a series of direct sequels. But like as each entry released, it was kind of like almost it's all it's almost like games as a service only in the older framework of creating sequels where you're intended to play them as a trilogy. So if you get Fuga Melody Steals is intended as a trilogy and they have three games that all get highly regarded, then like what you said, each each subsequent entry is like just advertising for the trilogy itself. Does that mean that Fuga 2 is almost maybe maybe doomed is too heavy handed, but like unless unless something unexpected happens going to sell less in Fuga 1? Maybe, but it also maybe bump the sales of Fuga One so that Fuga Two can have like a higher platform, like a, a lower, a, a higher floor, even if it has a lower ceiling. And so, if they're able to be smart about the resource allocation, about the artwork, and you know uh, the engine, like you said, uh, maybe it'll end up working all right for them. On a on a more fun, uh, fun note, like when they were uh, talking about you know the the live stream uh, during the live stream for the Fuga Melodies of the Steel first anniversary, they shared some survey results um uh that they that they uh, did and then like well one of the survey questions was uh which character did you use for the soul cannon <laughs> and they they had um the results from uh, japan and america on it um for number three and number two they were both the same they both had uh malt as number three and socks as number two on both lists for Japan, they had Boren as number one, mm-hmm. and then for, for for America, they had May as number one. Wow, who killed May? Like, the most innocent of all the kids. <laughs> Look at America. <laughs> hey, didn't they also say that like um, Fuga sold like much better in the West versus like Japan or something? Uh, I, I can believe that. I'm, I'm not sure if they just said that specifically, but uh, I can believe that they they, they did say it. Yeah. So you know, uh, this is still far off, but uh, they they showed just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of like footage, like in development in the, the live stream, and you know, we'll we'll see where it goes. But best of luck, and obviously, you know, the uh, in their plans right now, there's still going to be a Fuga three as well uh, in their plans. Here's another follow up about a game that we talked about on a recent episode of the podcast. I forget if it was last week or two weeks ago. 
Uh, and that is Acquire is creating a remake or a re-release for Adventure Academia, the Fractured Continent. It's not a, it's not a remake or re-release. It's it's a, it's a it's a new RPG set in the world of the class of heroes. Oh yeah, so I remember the class of heroes bit. I just forgot where this took place in it. And when it was announced, it was announced with both an English and uh, Japanese trailer, but like there was no like other official news about the English release. They have now kind of cleared up all the details there. Well, it turns out that uh, P Cube is acting as the partner for Acquire handling the English version of the release for Adventure Academia, The Fractured Continent. So I think that's pretty much the, the core of the information here is that P-Cube was the missing information that we didn't have before about the English release of this game. Uh, was there anything else nested in this uh, in this update to this, Josh? Um, not really. I mean, Adam and I were just baffled over it like until until this announcement of like, hey, why is there an English Steam page? And why? And then, like the the weird thing about the English Steam page at its announcement that Adam covered was there's like in-game assets that has English shots and like battle battle footage with English uh, English UI. And then yet on the Steam page, I think it still says it on the English Steam page as the as of now that yeah, on the English Steam page it says English language not supported, even <laughs> though quite clearly in the screenshots and in the video English language is supported. So like they need to like iron that out, but. As of now, like the 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 official English English release is uh, later this year, while the Japanese release is scheduled for September eighth. Um, but on the Steam page, it still has that release date of September of early September as well. So, you know, there's there's still some details to be ironed out exactly, but it's cool that you know they're finally acknowledging, hey, that there'll be an English release, not just on PC, but for PS4 and Switch as well. I do like how on the Steam page, it doesn't have a lot of discussions, but one of them is like, does this game support English or not? The store page says it doesn't, but the screenshot shows tons. Yep. So uh-huh. yeah, we feel you, buddy. <laughs> it's not very clear. That's but yeah, we have, we have English, we have a release date uh, in English, we have an English publisher. So almost certainly just an error on the Steam page. It looks like a cute game, though, for sure. I, I almost thought Gaijin Works might come from the dead to bring this game back to English or something. Oh, shit. <laughs> and here's a, a minor update for a game that was announced a while back. Um, currently, right now, there is an exhibition called the Wardarko Exhibition, which I don't know uh, specifically about this, but it's an artworks ex- expedition that took place in the last week of July in Japan, uh, in Tokyo. And in this, we got a new trailer for the Fate Extra remake called Fate Extra Record. And I don't know enough about the Fate Extra subseries to be able to talk about what was shown in this trailer for the uh, for the remake. So, Josh, yeah. is there any other details about what we saw for this? Uh, kind of this this game that kind of went like went missing for a bit since it's I think it was announced like in 2020 yeah. or something like that. Uh, oh, wow. We finally got a new trailer at this exhibition in Tokyo. Uh, anything from this that gives you hope that we might see this soon? Yeah, um, the the exhibition is for the character designer Arkowada, very very talented uh, character designer. She did the character designs for Fate the Fate Extra series, obviously. Um, when it was first unveiled in 2020, they were very 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 upfront and say. This is all we have right now for this remake. Um, like, it, like they, she showed a gameplay demo, uh, very briefly of like just like very prototype uh, image. It's like it, they said, like if I if I go around this corner, there's nothing there. Nothing has been developed. <laughs> this pretty much. So that's why it's been in. Uh, they've been silently, you know, working on it, and like after confirming that its existence, they showed off a lot of like. Um, cutscenes in this remake for this new trailer um a lot of like uh significant characters like ronnie like has like sort of like a, a new design with new co- a new costume 
in some battle scenes. You see some uh, of the servants that uh, showed up in the Fate Extra, like Robin. Um, it's looking very, very good, very high quality. I do wish that we got like footage of um, uh, like more of the battle system and seeing how that develops because the original on the PSP had like a very dull rock paper scissors, somewhat tedious battle system. Uh, the the battle footage they they initially shown like when it was first announced was a little bit better. But I'm kind of interested. I, I want to see it fleshed out a bit more. But you know, it's kind of nice to see that hey, this game they've been working on this game. It's looking very nice. It's looking really good. I'm hoping they announce more details soon. Hopefully a release window or release date. But everything I've seen so far looks very promising. Uh, because Fate, Fate Extra is a game that's like... I like the story of Fate Extra. I do not like the gameplay of Fate Extra. Uh, uh, like I, I think there's a lot of like interesting characters in that game. And I hope that like they they kind of nail it this time of like, hey, make that gameplay more engaging in this one. So. I think that's me with the Fate franchise when it comes to video games. Yeah, <laughs> like, I always have a, yeah. a hatred for Fate Grand Order for the gameplay. Yeah, yeah. 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 all the characters. Mm-hmm. But hey, look, they got prototype Merlin to roll. Josh. Yeah. No, yeah, they, 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 they uh, celebrate the seventh anniversary of Fate Grand Order in Japan this weekend as well. So there's a lot of... Uh, details coming out of that and yeah they did get uh prototype merlin in the mobile game finally after uh she debuted in um uh arcade arcade yeah everyone made that meme joke i'll never forgive the arcade but i mean there's there's still a lot of arcade exclusive characters that people are like yeah yeah Yeah. there's still a lot of like they they just introduced noah in uh fake grand order arcade as well (laughs) as an exclusive so big big week for noah's you know but yeah, uh, now, now now that I've watched the original Fate, I know I'm like way way behind, but I feel kind of weird in a way. Like oh, I recognize some of these characters. That's Lancer. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Soon, yeah. I'll, soon, soon I'll be able to like like call all these people out. Oh no! Don't, don't ever get there for your sanity. <laughs> okay. Don't ever get there. But yeah, uh, hopefully to be here more soon. I'm uh, I'm glad that like some brave Twitter user. Uh, uploaded the uh, the footage that was shown. At yeah, the, as far uh, as we know, the trailer is still just the camera footage from the attendance yep. and not uploaded anywhere officially yet. Yep. As of the time of recording, at least. Uh, a couple other smaller updates to uh, wrap out the uh, the podcast. We have a couple trailers for previously announced games that I don't know if we're going to get a ton of interesting uh, insight from. But we had the character introductions uh, either last week or the week before for Star Ocean: The Divine Force, at least the first of the uh, the first couple. Uh, this week we have a new trailer called English Mission Report Two, the, talking about DUMA and the Vanguard Assault. So this is basically talking about the uh, some of the gameplay mechanics in the game. It shows a lot. It's a pretty lengthy trailer showing a lot of gameplay footage about how the dungeons work and how the the, the overworld uh, combat works and all the things like that. So for people like Adam who says, like, he doesn't really care about the story. He just wants to break this game wide open and hopes that it has, like, fun systems at play. I think this trailer is basically uh, very much gameplay-focused to kind of pair with the character trailers that we had before, which was just kind of more generic and just kind of talking about the premise of the of the party and the cast that we're going to be playing with. So I don't know if there's any other insight that you took from this trailer for The Divine Force or if you're just kind of uh... in wait-and-see mode. I think it was exciting, actually, if, uh, the this gameplay trailer, like uh, showing the like I, I always had to remember to kind of pronounce it as D U M A because if you actually pronounce that normally without like the uh, the parent or the periods and the abbreviation, apparently that word is like a 
a Vietnamese slur, and like uh, my, my friend was commenting on that. I'm like, oh, that's really unfortunate. So oh, I didn't just know that. Heads up. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Just a heads yeah, up. I learned. Yeah. So uh, this uh, DUMA robot, like you know, uh, is like assists you, uh, like in navigating around. Like it straps onto your back, and like you, you get gain flight abilities. And as you like, you're flying around. You can like explore the world and in towns. You can get like crystals that that you can use to like upgrade its uh, abilities. And also find like you know hidden treasure chests around the world. The the thing that I didn't know is like you can actually use this in combat, where you can like use it to like level levitate in battle and like do like a diving attack uh, on the enemies called like a vanguard assault, and it'll do like a different abil uh, uh, abilities depending on um, who is doing the vanguard assault. So for example, um, like the healer girl, I forgot her name already, um, Nina. Uh, when she does it, she heals like a nearby allies. When Elena does it, she like analyzes the enemy uh, when she does a vanguard assault. And then you can do like trickier things in battle. Like when you're flying towards an enemy to get their attention, you can like dodge their like line of vision and then like attack them again to do a blind side, which is, you know, I pretty... saw this and I was trying to remember. I'm trying to like, I'm like pulling memories out of the crevices of my brain. Yep. Like, wasn't blind side, wasn't that the name of the mechanic in Star Ocean 4 when like the character like dashes to the side? Uh, yeah, Star Ocean so. I don't, I don't remember specifically what it was called, but it was very, very similar. similar. Did Star Ocean Five have something like that, or no? Uh, the Star Ocean really. games tend to have blindside mechanics. I don't know if, it, if like every one of them did, but I, I'm pretty sure it did. I want to say, yeah, Star but, Ocean Four did call it blindside. Apparently, blindside was also in animation I'm not going to pretend to know how to pronounce that. <laughs> uh, not in five, at least according to not, not yeah. I, I just played five earlier this year, and I don't remember don't any blindside-ish mechanics. Okay. So yeah, so now it's tied to the DUMA robot, basically augmenting your movement capability and being able to like horizontally dash relative to the enemy. Movement yeah, so, you get, so there's like a lot of like uh, snappier battles in this one. And when you're uh, like utilizing it, because blindside obviously uh, like kind of uh, dazes enemies for a bit and makes them more susceptible to like uh damage and like if you if you uh ambush an enemy with it and like kill them before they uh, uh lose the blind slide uh affliction then like you get greater rewards from it and it, it like it looks really smooth in in action uh, as and well. hopefully i, I know go for it i know one thing that adam always kind of critiques star ocean games for is that they become like art spamming in later combat maybe blind side will be a way to try to get away from that a little bit Maybe, maybe. Uh, it's also like there's also a, a point in this, uh, in this footage where they showed like uh, the the DU, DUMA like uh, when you levitate back from an enemy, there's like no animation. They're like kind of just like moving the character back, <laughs> like like placing it back as you're moving back. It, it's so funny and goofy looking that like I don't even necessarily like dock it a point for that. It's just like it looks really funny when they're trying to move backwards and there's no animation in flight. Right. It's like they're just being pulled by a tether or something. Yeah. So that that's about it. That's about it. Just you know, well, they're gonna they're gonna get into the juicy stuff for me and Adam next mission report with like like the skill tree system and how that works. And I'm looking at this now and being like, this font looks kind of similar to the UI font in the Tactics Ogre Reborn in a futuristic mm -hmm. game a little mm -hmm. bit. <laughs> the other trailer that we got this week uh, is just a simple spotlight trailer for. One of the titles in the Nice Prinny Presents Volume 3 for Rhapsody, a musical adventure. Uh, this is coming out on PC and Switch on August 30th. 
So this is just a kind of a, a fun trailer that's sing-songy of uh, 90 seconds, just kind of showing a lot of gameplay and premise for Rhapsody, a musical adventure. So very straightforward, just kind of introducing specifically that game out of the collection. Uh, don't know if there's really a whole lot more to say about that, but really fun. The English uh, song is, you know, catchy and cheery. Seems like it fits the tone and the artwork of the game really well. And the last bit of news is something that we kind of tangentially touched on uh, earlier, uh, and that is for the upcoming Monochrome Mobius Rights and Wrongs Forgotten. Uh, this is the game that was announced uh, late last year, uh, even though we didn't know the title until, I think, like March of this year. Uh, and this is the uh, game in the Utoaramono universe as its 20 an 20th anniversary title. It was originally going to come out on September 8th, 2022 but has been just recently announced to be pushed back to October 20th. So I think that actually clears up time in uh, James's schedule in a uh, particular no. reason. I, actually, it's the opposite. Oh, it makes it worse? How's that? Because assuming they send out review code around two weeks or maybe a little bit more before launch, that's going to intersect directly with Kuro no Kiseki 2 because Kuro uh, 2 comes out at the end of September. Well, that's just how the cookie crumbles, I guess. Yep. <laughs> so it's like it, uh, I, I'm I'm probably like the only person in the world where this is this this is negatively impacting me with uh, like uh, another game I want to play, but it, it, it's all right. It's just like, man. Oh, I do want to correct myself. It was Monochromobius even back when it was announced in like 2021. Just earlier this year when it was announced as the worldwide release for the series, which was kind of a remarkable thing at the time. Uh, that's when we got the English subtitle of Rights and Wrongs Forgotten. So just clarify. I got to check. Does this impact the Japanese release too? Or is it just the uh, Western release? It's delayed. It's, it's, it's both. No, it's both. All right. But yeah. so they want to improve the quality of the game. Yeah, so it's still sticking as the... A very unique worldwide release for the series. I say for the series, even though it's not, it doesn't have Utawara Mono in the uh, in the title, but it's still obviously very connected to those games. And that's the last bit of news that I have for the Tetracast. So very packed cast and a lot of cool impressions about a lot of different styles of games. We touched on Live Alive a little bit. Obviously, the long talk of the talk at the start for Xenoblade 3. Uh, Digimon Survive, we were able to get a taste of, and hopefully we'll have more chances to talk about that in the future. And of course, we're going to be talking about Xenoblade 3 for a fair bit for a while, too, because it's a massive game with a lot going on. So we'll surely uh, kind of revisit that as James and I get further and maybe as Chow is able to pick up a copy, potentially, if he's not too emotionally spurned. And then we're going to go into August, where we have things like soul hackers and some other things that are gonna, gonna it's not gonna let up anytime soon and then obviously you got Kurono Koseki 2 for uh those that can play in japanese and all the other games that are coming out uh this winter potentially tactics ogre in november if we ever get an official announcement on that go ahead and read josh's review up on the site for xenoblade chronicles 3 he went into a high a high level of detail while remaining as spoiler free as as feasible for his impressions of the game uh, Adam also has worked tirelessly on covering Xenoblade Chronicles 3 and is putting up a lot of primers about how the quests work, about the uh, the best classes, about the heroes and how to unlock them. Uh, specifically for the hero guide, uh, there is going to be, uh, if you're going to be spoiler conscious about anything, that is the guide you should avoid for the heroes. Um, of course, if you go into that, just be wary. He does give you ample warning inside those guides themselves. And we also do have the guide for a little, not the guide, the review for little Noah up on the site as well. And it's only been over a week, but we do have the live alive review from Paige as well as all the walkthroughs and guides that Chow put together on that. And hopefully in the upcoming weeks, we'll have uh, features up on the site for Digimon Survive as well once we get time to uh, put those together. You can follow us on any of the social media platforms. Just search for RPG site on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram. 
You can join our Discord at discord.gg slash RPG site. We do have a room specifically for Xenoblade 3 discussion. And then we also do have a room for any general RPG discussion of any type that you want to talk about. And we do make sure that all discussion in our Discord tries to remain as spoiler-free as possible with correct use of the spoiler bars. And you'll hear from us next time as we talk about our further impressions of all the games that have released recently as we get time to go through them. So we look forward to talking to you then. We look forward to hearing feedback about what you think on this discussion for Xenoblade. Leave us some comments if you feel inclined. Until you hear from us next time, stay safe and take care. We'll talk to you then. What a... What is that referring to? <laughs> One of the very first scenes they showed of Xenoblade 3 was a scene in Chapter 2 when they're in a desert and they finally see the Oasis. And in a British, very, very British accent, Mio's like, it's what a... And people make fun of it. <laughs> and they, uh, they never let up.